Biohacking is just the the concept of of using some form of, of technology or science or or external tool to either get the body to do something more efficiently than it normally would be able to or um, to, to get the body to get to a level that it wouldn't have been able to get to in the absence of that technology or tool. Everyone you meet every single day is fighting a battle you may know nothing about. We're all in the process of overcoming. I'm Justin Wren, and my story has been heard by millions of people through my book, my TED Talk, podcast interviews, TV shows, professional fighting, and my foundation, Fight for the Forgotten. I believe we are all overcomers if we choose to overcome. We all have the option. I've been given the opportunity to overcome childhood trauma, sexual abuse, immense bullying, depression, suicidal ideation, substance use disorder, and I am a two-time suicide survivor. We are here to have conversations with some of the greatest minds of our time. Get ready to be inspired and to receive the tools and game plan to win this fight called life. Thank you for being here, for showing up for yourself. You, me, we have overcome 100% of our darkest days. I'm not done yet, and neither are you. This is your invitation to overcome. This episode of Overcome with Justin Wren is with Ben Greenfield. Ben is a leader in health and wellness and is the author of 13 books with a new one on parenting out soon. He's a highly sought after podcast guest as well as a pioneer in podcasting, having his own show since about the first 20 shows or so on iTunes, I believe. He is a real pioneer having to code each individual episode. He's a renaissance man, a total human optimizer, and an absolute beast at 40 years old. I say that with experience. You will have to listen and hear how he almost made me throw up today on it. And that would be the first time I ever needed a trash can at on it because it was such a killer workout just in case I was going to throw up. And one of the things that we didn't say in this episode that I'm going to say in this intro is that on the last set of everything we did, we had to do nasal breathing only. So two minutes of cardio, only breathing through your nose. And we didn't really explain that in there. But Ben is a wealth of knowledge, incredibly interesting, and you will surely learn quite a lot to optimize your health, your sleep, and even your family, as I did in this episode. And just so you know, I am a fan of Ben's work, his life, and who he is as a person. I'm honored to introduce you to Ben Greenfield today. If you haven't heard of him, and if you have, I truly believe you will find something valuable to your life. We had some fun at the end, and we wrapped it up with me giving him an animal psychology quiz. And Ben found his spirit animal, backed by Carl Jung's work. A, a renowned therapist like helped me through this and like taught me how to give it to others. And it was pretty fun. So stay tuned to the end. And if you want, you can do the test yourself. Just when I ask him a question, push pause. And you answer that question. Answer it and then push play. And then before I ask another question or after I ask the second question, make sure you pause it again. Make sure you pause so that you can answer it and be thorough Give like three answers and then keep going. So write down your answers and I think you're going to have a lot of fun with it. So 
Make sure you check out Ben's new book. Keep an eye out for that. It's a new book on parenting. And I think you're really going to like his advice on that as well as his advice on travel workouts, travel sleep hacks, and so much more really valuable info. Make sure you follow Ben everywhere and go to bengreenfieldlife.com. Check out his podcast, his books, all that stuff. And also, please don't forget to leave a review on the show wherever you are listening. And again, thanks for our sponsors on it, on it.com slash overcome and also fight for the forgotten, fight for the forgotten.org, the nonprofit I founded. Well, hey, man, thank you for being here. I really appreciate uh, your time on the podcast, but man, earlier today, that was, I was that was say, a, thank you for not throwing up on me. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> Amy, this was the first time I carried a trash can at on it. I carried it around with me like the different, I, I mm-hmm. there was two trash cans. Oh, I because put them, you thought you were going to throw up? Yeah. Cause Ben was <laughs> working me. It was Good job, ben. cardio well, and it was, it was I, great. I don't like to eat before I work out in the morning. <clears throat> I made the mistake. You, you see what I walked out the door with? And he had a, a bunch sausage. of sausages. Yes. Well, and it, it was, it was, it was so concerning <laughs> to me that he had the trash can. And I'm, I am kind of an asshole. Like I wasn't, I wasn't going to stop the workout or say, okay, well, let's go do some crunches instead of burpees and everything else. And, uh, and so I was a little bit concerned seeing him here with the trash can. And then I made a joke and I was like, well, you, at least you didn't have any spicy sausage today. And he looks at me and he's like. I said, can you, know you smell I, it? No, I have a breakfast. Yeah, he said, can you smell it? Can you smell it? And, I'm, and then my heart sunk and I was like, oh no, he actually did have spicy sausage and I'm just destroying us with this cardiovascular. Vascularly yeah. demanding workout. We were on the rower, and, the aerodyne yeah. bikes, uh, in the ski erg. And yeah, that's sleds. That's, it's it's my okay. So if if I'm traveling and I just want to squeeze a lot in in a short period of time, usually I'll I'll mix cardio and strength. But then if you're at a gym that you're unfamiliar with and you don't know who's going to be using what equipment, it's just a very, very basic and simple equation. You choose any piece of cardio and you do two minutes as hard as you can on it. And then you choose some kind of a functional movement like kettlebell swing or a bent row or a pull up or a Spider-Man push up or whatever. And you just go back and forth from the cardio to the one exercise. And so what Justin and I did today was we, we did the aerodyne to... Uh, well, to Spider-Man push-ups, and then we did the concept two upright ski erg thing to kettlebell swings, and then we did rowing machine to sled pushes, and then we did bent rows <laughs> to reverse hypers, and then for dessert we finished with two <laughs> minutes as hard as possible on the rowing machine to twenty burpees to the concept two. Oof. So it was and a we did solid four, workout. four rounds of each thing. And we don't stop. It's no rest. It's an hour with no rest. Yeah. Oh, so four rounds, like when you say uh, aerodyne to kettlebells, yeah. it's yeah. like four rounds of that. Yeah. yeah. And, and like, I, so I get, I, I find at least, especially maybe as I, as I age, this might be a factor, but I don't do well with heavy weights. I just, it's. I'll go for a few months and I'll just tweak something, or, you know, back squatting or, or, you know, pull the back deadlifting. I find though that, that like the high intensity body weight stuff, long amounts of time under tension, high reps, I can roll with that for months on end and feel great. So yeah. How, well, how old are you? I'm 40. Okay. Yeah. He's 40. He looks younger than me. Acted younger than me in the gym today. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I did have, uh, like 12 hour days on the motorcycle two yeah, days in a row. Yeah, he was on a and, motorcycle. And, and in between it, I was eating barbecue and Mexican food. 
mm-hmm. and all that. And I think I probably would have changed. I, we were in these little country <laughs> towns. There wasn't anything else to get, but I probably would have packed my own food or something if I knew I was going to work out with Ben today. Yeah. That's well, for sure. Fun. And not ate, eating the uh, spicy Italian sausage or I turkey sausage. I don't know. I know you pretty well. I think you might have just done it anyway. Well, I, it's funny. I was listening <laughs> to him and Rogan uh, in the just prepping today. And they were talking about salt intake. And I'm like, what do we have that's salty? There was really nothing in the fridge uh, because we'd been out of town. And that was what was there. And so I decided to eat the sausage for salt to try. Yeah, to- <laughs> which is good. And, and Justin saw that I travel everywhere with a bag of salt. Like I just always have a bag of salt in my bag. And I've done that for years. And the reason for that is I feel really good high salt, like six grams plus of salt per day. I, I just salt everything very heavily. And when I was racing in all these Ironman triathlons, we used to have a physiologist who would come and test the athletes and they tested what's called your sweat sodium analysis, like the, the, uh, amount of sodium that you lose in your sweat and the levels that I was losing was like two or three times higher than the other people on the team. That's just like a genetic thing, right? I just lose a lot of salt in my sweat. And so I just started sweating or, or, or salting all my food pretty heavily after I got the results of that test. And I, like, I started sleeping better and I couldn't hear my blood kind of like pounding in my ears. You know, when you lay down wow. and you hear your blood pounding in your ears, especially if you've been training heavy, like that went away. Um, dizziness from like sitting down or laying down and then going standing to a standing yep. position that went away and I feel great. And of course my blood pressure is great. It's fantastic. So you know, the issue with the salt is if it's isolated sodium chloride, such as you would find in table salt, that's what you want to be careful with. But if salt's balanced out, like in a really good salt, like a Florida cells, or we were doing like a Kalima salt today or some of these electrolyte blends that are full spectrum minerals, not, not just isolated sodium chloride. You feel amazing. Like I think, I think I'm that way too, where I just lose a lot. I mean, at a wrestling practice, I can lose 13 pounds of water weight. Yeah. So I got to put the salt back in, but yeah. tell Amy what you did with your smoothie today. It was a PB cup, so peanut butter <laughs> cup, and he okay. just took it off and dumped salt into it. I did it in mine, and it was excellent. It was great, but so she good. loves peanut butter, so oh, I thought so she good. would. I like it salted, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, I, the other thing that I do a lot of times is when I'm traveling, right? Because sometimes when you're traveling, your food options are limited, but salt can take just about, but salt can take kind of a cheap-ass airport salad and make it taste halfway decent and then you throw olive oil into the mix right mm-hmm. like a, and so i i usually will have like a little bottle like really good spicy pungent extra virgin olive oil so i know if i wind up at a restaurant where things aren't that great i can i could order the freaking roasted vegetables and put some salt and olive oil on there and be good to go i so, think we're gonna have to get your cookbook boundless right is boundless, boundless cook boundless cookbook cookbook i yep. think that'd be really good yep. what was what was boundless the book about well, bound, boundless. The I have an book, idea, but it, it, I originally wanted to write a book on anti-aging and longevity. You know, things like stem cell mobilization and uh, you know, staving off cognitive decline with age, and staving off some of the loss of the, the T cells and immune function as you age, and some of these peptide therapies that people are doing, and and the regenerative medicine therapies. And I started to write it, and I realized that there's so many physiological mechanisms that are associated with the process of aging that you really can't write a book that thoroughly addresses 
longevity and anti-aging without kind of addressing every aspect of the human body, like cognitive function and, and, and muscle maintenance and fat loss and mitochondrial density and the immune system and the gut. And then, oh, you start to look at the blue zones where there's, you know, old cigarette smoking, gin chugging grandmas who are healthy and they're not doing any of the peptides and the stem cells and stuff. And they just have love and relationships or, mm. you know, or, or in Okinawa, you know, old men and old women who don't lift weights at all and don't do peptide injections, but they have a really strong ikigai or life purpose, you know, in addition to whatever, eating purple potatoes and fish. So then you have the whole spiritual dynamic and ultimately the book wound up being just kind of like more of a manual to just like life optimization and, and health optimization than just anti-aging and longevity and, and just kind of took on a life of its own. But yeah, the original idea was going to be anti-aging and longevity. And then it was just like, all right, well, it's just the whole human blueprint. Yeah. yeah. Well, I thought, it, I thought it had stem cells and peptides in there. I've had some great, yeah. I've had some great, uh, results. I, I broke my knee the tibia plateau six weeks before I was supposed to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. I was Whoa. doing that with Chris Long, who won the Super Bowl like two weeks before, and we were doing it for charity for Water Boys and Fight for the Forgotten. We we're raising mm -hmm. funds for it. I break my tibia plateau, and they say I have to be non weight bearing for six full weeks. And we had just raised over two hundred thousand dollars for yeah. the climb, and we we're going to drill a bunch of water wells after that. So you hired somebody to push you up Mount Kilimanjaro? In yeah, the yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I got stem cells at. Uh, two weeks I had the, is it mesenchymal or mesenchymal? Yeah. They, me mesenchymal, the yeah. M MSCs, they call them mesenchymal stem cells. Yeah. yeah. They got it from my bone marrow. Yeah. And then they, which, which by, by the way, sorry to interrupt for people listening in the, the MSCs that, that, that's usually kind of like the more potent version of the stem cell that can, that can differentiate into other tissue. And you got a really low MSC count typically if the stem cells are non-autologous mean they come from a tissue other than your own. And then if you take your own marrow or your own fat and concentrate that, you get a higher level of the MSCs, which sounds like what you did. Yeah. And I've had that twice. And the one in my knee, I got it two weeks and they took enough to where they could do it again in two weeks after that, because I wanted to go on the climb still. And so I got it at two weeks at four weeks and then five weeks. I wasn't able to train for the, the climb. I was training MMA and stuff, so I was in pretty good shape. But at five weeks, I was at the top of Mount Elbert, and the NFL films were following me, doing a little bit of a documentary on the whole climb, but talking about the struggle there. And I got to the top of Elbert, which is the tallest 14er in Colorado, and it was in the winter. It was like January, so I'm snowshoeing up it. Oh, wow. And then at six weeks, I was at the top of Kilimanjaro, and I was supposed to be non-weight bearing for six full weeks uh -huh. and uh, virtually pain-free, and I don't have any problems in it anymore. Jeez. Then uh, PRP helped me in my bicep, but I was young. I was before uh -huh. the Ultimate Fighter finale, and I tore my bicep. It looked like a camel's back, um, tore right in the middle. Oh, you could actually see it curl up. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. it was bad. It was two yeah. hump, two humps, and they put PRP and something else in there. I think it might have been PRP and like the Reginikine or Reginikine, mm -hmm. and I fought three weeks later. And so I'm a big wow. proponent of, of, uh, regenerative medicine. I just had some in my sh shoulder. That was the bone marrow. And then, um, what else have I done? I've done stem cells in my neck, my knees. Uh, and those were from the, like, uh, what is it? The umbilical cord and the placental 
uh, stem cells, and those seem to help a lot too. The only thing that's left for you to do now is to get the Wolverine claws embedded in <laughs> yeah. your knuckles. Yeah, from the BPC. <laughs> Isn't that what they call that? We need their steak cut. I, I heard about <laughs> I'm on top of that. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's been great. I'm I'm really impressed by the results of regenerative like regenerative medicine is very cool yeah yeah what, what what you can do now in a minimally invasive manner and you know tony robbins and peter diamandis they just wrote a new book called life force that gets into a lot of these cool cutting edge modalities that are, that we can you can grow new organs and you can lay oh. down stem cell scaffolding almost like a like a spray into different joints you know a cartilaginous resurfacing they're getting to the point now where they can like print custom like, like, like they can take a measurement of your joint and make like a custom covering of it for a joint replacement. That is wild. All this stuff is fascinating. Cause, cause like when I graduated from college, I, I wanted to be a doctor and I, I didn't get accepted to the medical schools that I wanted to get accepted to. And so I took a year off and, and sold hip and knee surgical equipment, like did hip and knee surgical sales for a company called Biomet. Okay. And actually during that time realized I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't enjoy the medical system at all. <laughs> like all the doctors I was around, they were like, dude, don't be a doctor. Uh, but I saw a lot of these hips and knees get installed. Mm -hmm. And uh, apparently, like how far hip and knee joint replacement has come since that time is just staggering. Like as far as, as the, the ability to be able to hyper-customize a joint replacement. Well, I just have to take a moment real quick and thank the sponsors of this show on it. On it.com slash overcome. You can save yourself 10% on alpha brain or new mood or total human some of my absolute favorites and i'm just so grateful for their support this show wouldn't exist without them so thank you so much on it for sponsoring the show and also thank you for helping me get optimized total human optimization i also coined something maybe cheesy but i think it's kind of cute it's total humanitarian optimization oh they help me when i'm going into a long meeting for development work community development and I just love the way that I feel getting into that flow state faster, feeling like I stay there longer and have had so many friends try it and absolutely love it. If you haven't tried it, you can try it for free. There's an Alpha Brain free trial. I think you get 15 days of free Alpha Brain. So please, what's the risk? Put it to the test. I would love to hear your feedback on it. Try it, the world-class nootropic that uh, really helps increase clarity, your memory, and I think it helps me engage in conversation and just feel like I'm firing on all cylinders so much better. So onit.com slash overcome, you can try it for free, Alpha Brain for free, and uh, you can save yourself 10% on all Onit products at overcome, or onit.com slash overcome, every time. Onit.com slash overcome, and at checkout, don't forget to type in overcome. Yep. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think about this question because it's almost, I, I don't want to sound bad, but it's almost like you've been, how did you get into all this? And then it, not that you've been a lab rat, but you've been an experiment, like where you're just like going and seeking all these things and allowing these breakthrough procedures on, on yourself and seeing the benefits of it. Yeah. Where did that interest and that quest for knowledge come from oh well i you know i, I don't have a, a sexy little wounded healer story or anything like that i've just always been into physical culture and the outdoors and you know healthy living and, and so i i grew up 
just out in the sticks in North Idaho, you know, homeschooled me and my four siblings. And we, we'd spend a lot of, you know, homeschooling for us, at least, you know, I'd get up and I'd, I'd read my books and do my schoolwork. And I'd typically done with school by like 11 AM and I'd just be outdoors, you know, playing and soaking up the sunshine and, and hanging out outside. And, uh, I also, since I was homeschooled, I was kind of a nerd and yeah, I played the violin. I was in the chess club and I, I think I, you might be the toughest, um, after making me throw up almost, um, I think you're the toughest homeschool kid. I've <laughs> the toughest homeschool kid. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm not as good as at crocheting as some of the other homeschool boys. Uh, but yeah, homeschooling is interesting. Yeah, it is. You go to prom by yourself and. You, know, you, yeah. you risk getting accused of incense if you like your classmate or, or oh your yeah, teacher. yeah. <laughs> your teacher sleeps with your teacher sleeps with the principal. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a yeah. weird, weird. You know, PP is dragging all your your siblings' cloth diapers up and down the stairs. Uh, but anyways, <laughs> the um the the thing with homeschooling is I had a real appreciation for for academics. You know, I was very 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 academic, but then I also loved all this physical culture stuff, and I originally actually wanted to be a computer programmer. I like to design video games and play video games. And I was, I was one of the first guys who play like the online world of Warcraft and then world of Starcraft. That was, that was like my world. I'd love to do that and, you know, create first person shooter video games. And, you know, my parents had hired me like a private computer programmer tutor and lined me up with this job with this guy who had retired from Microsoft to, to work for him. And, uh, what happened was I started playing tennis, like a lot of tennis and got super into tennis. Like, four or five hours a day and got really good and played high school and played club tennis. And seems like you had a good frame started. for it too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of long and lanky and low, like, but, but big enough to be kind of explosive. And so, uh, I taught tennis lessons. That was my job. That's how I was saving up for college was I would, we li I literally built a tennis court in our backyard and I painted all the lines in it and I would plaster like posters up around the neighborhood to get people to come over for tennis lessons. And I would email all my, all my parents' friends to see if their kids would sign up for tennis lessons. I actually did, did pretty good. Like I would teach tennis lessons for four or five hours a day, you know, from the time I was 14 until I was 16 years old to save up for college. And then went to college, started playing tennis. And at that point, just because I was so into, you know, how could I eat to be a better tennis player? And and what do I do with these dumbbells to get stronger, you know, serving the tennis ball? And, um, you know, and, and what, are the, what are the supplements and the electrolytes, you know, the things that people use for tennis? And so I just got so into it that I thought, gosh, this is amazing. I want to study more about, like, how to get a lot out of the human body, the human brain, you know, athletic performance, sports performance, things like that. And I also had a couple of friends, one who was the Washington State powerlifting champion, uh, Rafael uh, Escamilla, and then another guy uh, named Barry, who was a professional bodybuilder. And Barry and Rafael, they would take me to the gym and teach me stuff. And I just thought it was super cool. You know, get to hang out with the big bodybuilders and powerlifters and learn stuff from them. And so – I went to college and I decided I wanted to study exercise. So I studied exercise physiology and biomechanics. And then I got interested in medicine, did pre-med and, and really thought I wanted to be a doctor, like a sports medicine physician, orthopedic surgeon, and, uh, wound up not doing that, but I got my master's degree in physiology and in biomechanics. And then after that little stint in surgical sales and realizing I didn't want to go on into medicine, I just jumped straight back into fitness and all through college, I was working as a personal trainer and as a nutritionist and teaching sports camps. And so, uh, it, it just fit for me. And I've, I've literally, since I was like 14 years old, pretty much like 80% of all I've done is just study the human body and, you know, performance optimization and health and, you know, now anti-aging and longevity and things like that. So, yeah. yeah. So what is, 
<clears throat> for people that don't know what the necessarily the definition is, what do you what do you think biohacking is? How do you explain that? Oh, biohacking? Yeah. You're just putting butter in your coffee. Everybody knows okay, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're is a that professional biohacker. You wake up and yeah. you put some Because I've heard people say gold. there is no hack for this and yeah. then and then but yeah. there's a lot of people that that swear by it. Yeah, biohacking is just the the concept of of using some form of, of technology or science or or external tool to either get the body to do something more efficiently than it normally would be able to or um, to, to get the body to get to a level that it wouldn't have been able to get to in the absence of that technology or tool. And so the original biohackers, they, they were called grinders and they called their body wetware and things that they would put on their body or into their body, the hardware. And so you'd have like you know, guys like Kevin Warwick, who was the original human cyborg who had like magnetic implants in his fingertips to be able to interact with technology, kind of like Tom Cruise did in Minority Report, you know, with screens and things like that. And then there was another guy who got chlorophyll injected into his eyeballs for Whoa. night vision. And, and you could get like a compass that was in <clears throat> installed in the skin on your chest that would vibrate when you'd face true north, you know, all these, these crazy things. And so that was like the original biohacking. And now biohacking has become more of this kind of idea that you just use technology to enhance the body without necessarily having to get an implant or a surgery or whatever, Wolverine claws yeah, yeah, yeah. in your knuckles <laughs> or something like that. And so, um, so the, the way I like to think about it is, uh, let, let's, let's use a few examples. Like, let's say light, you know, infrared light, which is a very popular thing. Now, this concept of using what's called photobiomodulation and, and shining light on the skin to do something like increase the mitochondrial production of ATP or improve your collagen or, or elastin health, or, you know, it's, it's, it's this thing in the news right now. A lot of guys will shine the red light on their balls to increase their testosterone or, or on the thyroid, Does that work? thyroid hormone production anecdotally uh and and based on a few small rodent studies there is some evidence that like 600 to 800 nanometers of light shown on the gonads increases the the mitochondrial activity in the testes and it could potentially increase testosterone okay i don't it could also be just like standing naked in front of a red light for 20 minutes i i don't know <laughs> yeah um but but you you look at uh practice like that and really you could go out into the sunlight and get full spectrum infrared light and UVA and UVB and, and all the benefits that you'd be looking for from a red light panel by being out in the sun. But let's say you can't get out in the sun or you know, you're like me and your house is in the forest on a north facing slope. So you only get sunlight from 10 to 2 or you got to be at work and, and you aren't able to get out in the sunlight that day or it's just a dark and gray and cloudy day or you don't have a lot of time to be out in the sunlight. Well, just basically standing in front of one of these red light panels for like 20 minutes gives you all the benefits you'd be looking for from the sunlight, but in a very short, concentrated period of time. Hence, I would consider that to be like a, a biohack while right? you're using light to hack your physiology to get what you'd normally be getting from sunlight, but more efficiently or more quickly. Another example would be like a lot of people will do the grounding or the earthing, you know, go outside barefoot or, you know, hug a tree or climb rocks or whatever to, to get all the anti-inflammatory benefits that are derived from the natural electrical 
conductivity on the surface of the planet. Like these electromagnetic signals that the planet puts out are helpful EMFs. Like we, we always hear about how bad EMFs are for you, you know, your cell phone, your Wi-Fi route, but, but the, our, or the planet Earth makes EMFs. You know, rocks and trees have have electromagnetic properties, and they're actually beneficial for you. So you can go outside barefoot, and you could lay down on your back and meditate in the backyard. But again, let's say that kind of like sunlight, you aren't able to do that. Well, another example of a popular biohack is people will like sleep on these grounding mats, or have like a grounding mat that you stand on when you're at work. Or some people will use more concentrated pulsed forms of this electromagnetic energy called PEMF pulsed electromagnetic fields. And these are used for injuries and for healing and for cellular function and for blood flow. And so th that would be an example of taking a natural activity like earthing or grounding and turning it into a biohack, right? Like using technology and science to help your body to be able to experience that more efficiently or more quickly, especially if you can't get outdoors and be barefoot. So what I'm getting at is it's a pretty, it's, it's a pretty broad term biohacking. I think you can apply it to a lot of stuff now. And it's almost like a way to make some things that normally people would just do for health sound sexy. You know, kind of, I kind of joke about the butter in your coffee, but technically, I mean like that's, that's cause <clears throat> like a lot of biohackers will do that, right? Yeah. They'll blend their butter in the coffee. That's not really bio. That's just like cooking, right? It's not biohacking. It's literally just like putting butter in your coffee, <laughs> but then you can say that you're a biohacker and yeah. it sounds good. Fightfortheforgotten.org. You can go check out Fight for the Forgotten, the foundation that I started. It is my passion project. It is something that I love so much because of the people we get to help. We get to help the pygmy tribe who adopted me in help themselves. We say opportunity is greater than charity. Charity can be great, but opportunity is just always better. That's why we've drilled something like 80 water wells already providing over 30,000 people clean water. We've started sustainable farms, bought back over 3,000 acres of land for the people who originally owned it, put it in their name. We built 32 homes, and now we're about to start a health center, a school, and a marketplace. They're gonna have a maternity ward, a pediatrics unit, and a dental suite. You can join the Fight for the Forgotten Fight Club at fightfortheforgotten.org. We would love, love, love to invite you on this journey to join this fight arm in arm with us. Our fight club, it's a monthly giving club. You can give $5 or more a month and that empowers us to empower people. Thank you for being on this journey with us. I invite you to come along for the ride. It's been absolutely epic, putting love and compassion in action and fighting for people. Fightfortheforgotten.org, join our fight club. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, on the earthing grounding, you reminded me, I, for the first month or two, I lived in the Congo and I was in the rainforest. So under the canopy, I was where I brought these big clunky boots, but I didn't think about how incredibly hot and humid it is there. And then how wet my feet would get and sweat inside these boots. And no one in the village wore shoes at all, hardly. And if they did, they were, they called them a papas, which are just flip-flops. Uh -huh. And so I just went shoeless for, unless I was on the well drilling site where something heavy could just drop on my feet. One of my favorite things in the morning was just go outside, put my feet on the ground. And I didn't even know about grounding earthing at that time. Uh -huh. And so, but yeah, I mean, going on hikes through the forest, hour, two hour hike, and just being with the, the tribe and the pygmy yeah. people, just being barefoot out there and going across logs and walking through rivers and all sorts of stuff. Like it was just, it was epic. Have you ever like, done it connected. after you've gotten off an airplane? 
Like after, yeah. oh my goodness. Like it's, it, I think it's one of the best ways to beat jet lag. So when, when you're in a body of water, like a natural body of water, especially one that has a high amount of salinity, like, like an ocean, that is, that, that is like grounding on steroids. It's, it's like 20 X the amount of electrical conductivity that you get absorbed into your body. That, that's basically anti-inflammatory. If you're swimming, say like in the ocean, you know, and, and so if I'm traveling and I'm crossing a lot of time zones, well, first things I do is get outside barefoot or just go like lay on my back outside the hotel. If the hotel has like one of those little grassy places yeah. or, or do some yoga, you know, we're down mm -hmm. dog where both your hands and your feet are touching the ground. But then like even better than that, if you, if you're jet lagged and wherever you've traveled happens to have like an outside body of water or, or like a lake or an ocean or something like that, it's one of the best ways to feel really good when you travel. I, I wish more people knew about it. Yeah. <clears throat> motorcycling yesterday, we went through Kerrville and we rode along the Guadalupe River. We're on the bikes all day. We're sweaty, like crazy. We went on these twists and turns, 200 turns, and we did it twice. And then we were, the sun came out. We went and jumped in the Guadalupe River mm -hmm. and we went swimming and it was, it was epic. It was so refreshing and it's, it's spring fed. So it's like natural, clear water. And it was just, it was the way to top off the trip. Yeah. Just jumping in the lake or yeah. the river. Yeah. It's amazing. There's, it's, it's interesting, you know, the, the whole idea with, um, with travel, because I know you, you travel a lot and I actually, I, I think you should tell a little bit more about what you're doing over in, over in Africa that you were telling me on the, in, when we were in the cold pool, because sure. that, that sounds just fascinating, but it, it's really interesting how many things can help you feel better when you travel. Like that's part, it's, it, it, it's part of the whole biohacking thing is, you know, well, you're crossing multiple time zones, you're fighting like this battle that this what would be called like an evolutionary mismatch right in a post-industrial era we've got all these evolutionary mismatches we live in boxes and we have overhead bright led fluorescent lighting and all these these signals emanating from our wi-fi router that are like these standard square waveforms when the body's more used to like random waveforms and it, and it can't really deal with that type of hertz frequency quite as well and and you know and then we've got you know these things are breathing in you know household cleaning chemicals and personal care products i'm not saying this just to you know, make people think they should live in a bubble or something like that. But you got to do a lot these days, it seems like, to actually feel good because there's so many things that aren't natural for the human body or that we haven't really grown accustomed to be able to deal with. And, and of course, flying 40,000 feet above the surface of the earth in a metal tube is, is one of those things. Like people just feel kind of shitty after they, after they fly. And so, yeah, getting outside barefoot and grounding is one thing. But then, like, I have a, I have a little stack that I take when I fly mm. um, because you look at radiative damage and you look at in response to all these little like cell phone signals and Wi-Fi routers and everything in that little metal tube that, that you're flying through sometimes for hours on end, you get a, a high amount of, of calcium influx into the cell, which causes this, this electrochemical gradient that's p a positive charge inside the cell when it's supposed to be a negative charge inside the cell. And then you also get some of the, some of the DNA damage that can occur in response to the radiation. So I thought, well, um, you can regulate some of the inflammatory pathways and satiate the appetite so you don't have to eat crappy airplane food or airport food if you use ketones, right? So I put a little bottle of these ketones, so it's just like a little Ziploc bag and take with me on the flight, low bottle of these ketone esters, you know, like these drinkable liquid ketones. Um, and then the next thing to offset the calcium influx is you take some magnesium capsules and you know, just like whatever 
magnesium product that you like. And then for the DNA damage, you take a little bit of NAD, which mm. is really, really great for, for helping to repair and protect DNA. And so it's NAD, magnesium, and ketones. And I'll just take a little bit of that when I'm, when I'm on the flight. And then, dude, like, like grounding or earthing right when you get to where you're going, and you feel pretty good. Yeah. And then, then the only other one is like a ton of melatonin. The first night I get to where I'm going, ton of, like 200 to 600 milligrams of melatonin. Really? Really high dose, but just for the first day. It's like a melatonin sledgehammer, resets everything, and then you feel good. Really? Yeah. I didn't know you could take that yeah. much. You can take a lot. Melatonin's interesting. It's anti-inflammatory. It's, it's got a, a lot of uh, protective activities for the cell. Um, and, and a lot of people think if you take a whole bunch, your body's not going to make its own, which probably like, theoretically chronic high dose melatonin use for a really long period of time could cause that. But just doing like a huge bolus of melatonin right when you get to where you are traveling just to reset the circadian rhythm. I mean, I'd, whenever I do international travel, I do it and you, just, you sleep like a baby the first night and then you're just good to go. That's interesting. Amy is a sleep freak, self-proclaimed sleep <laughs> freak, right? Yeah. And so what, what is, how important is sleep for the body recovery? And then what is, if you had one or two things that are an absolute non-negotiable must for sleep, getting better sleep, oh. what would you say? Well, I mean, sleep is important. Everybody, everybody knows that. And everybody knows, I think, at this point that things like appetite dysregulation and weight gain and poor mood and, and poor immune function, all these things happen when you don't sleep properly. And a lot of people also are aware, I think, you know, thanks to people like, you know, Matt Walker and oh, yeah. he wrote the book, uh, why we, what's it called? Why, why, we, sleep. why, we, why sleep. we sleep. And you know, there's a lot of other really great sleep researchers out there. I've had a, a few of them on my podcast before. There's another really great guy, uh, Dr. Nick Littlehales and, and Dr. Michael Bruce. And, you know, there's some pretty good sleep research and sleep books out there. And so now a lot of people are aware of the basics of sleep hygiene, which would basically be you sleep in a, in a cold environment, on a cold surface preferably. You sleep in a dark environment, right, without a lot of, of external light input from a phone or, or lights or anything else. You sleep um, in, in a safe place, meaning that the bed is not a place where you do a lot of, of business and thinking and, and working. It's a place for relaxation, for sleeping, or for sex. That's basically what the, what the bedroom should be for. And then you want a quiet place that doesn't have a lot of, of audio distractions unless it's like soothing sounds like white noise generators or the sounds of whales or whatever else people listen to these days to help them <laughs> to, to sleep. Even though I never understood the idea of the, of the whales. Um, just don't find <laughs> large sea mammals that relaxing. Uh, but but uh, then then you look at the subtle nuances, and I think that's where people stumble. It's like, okay, so I heard that that cold is important, but a lot of people, they're just like, okay, so I'm not going to sleep in a sweatsuit. But no, I mean, like you can do a lot of things. Like, have you guys seen this chili pad before that people sleep on? I had a chili pad. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. the chili pad. I don't have it anymore, that, but I, I – yeah, yeah, I had it and I loved it. Yeah, it's great. Get, it circulates the cold water. Yeah. A lot of companies, uh, like there's a company called Essentia. There's a company called Intellibed. They make these mattresses that naturally stay more cool. They don't collect as much body heat. You know, you, 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 we always turn off the heat in our house. If you sleep with wool socks on, that helps to cool the rest of the body. Really? Paradoxically. Yeah, it cools the core when you keep the feet warm. Same thing for the hands. You have these things called arteriovenous anastomoses in your hands and your feet and your forehead. Head that if you keep those warm, the rest of the body stays kind of cool, which is kind of interesting. So, so a hack is you can sleep with the wool socks on. Uh, you could take Did a you luke, do that? lukewarm shower before bed. If I'm traveling, 
Okay, so so this is what I'm doing while I'm here in Austin. So I'm traveling. I don't have my chili pad. I don't have my special mattress that that, that doesn't you know, collect as much heat. So I take a lukewarm shower before bed because it doesn't have to be super cold. And the problem, if it's too cold, is you get this sympathetic response. You guys, you know, if you've done cold plunges, you know about this. You get like you have a bunch of energy afterwards, which yeah. you don't want before you go to bed. So it's lukewarm shower. And then pull socks on, preferably wearing little else except socks, and you get into bed and you actually stay pretty cool with that strategy. So so the temperature is one thing. The 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 light, like I mentioned, a lot of people know, okay, don't look at your cell phone in bed, don't don't watch your TV in the bedroom. But there's so many other things, like your circadian rhythm starts, it begins in the morning. So most people who have sleep problems are not getting a lot of bright light, specifically sunlight or full spectrum light in the morning. You, you should be getting within an hour of waking up about 20 minutes or so of like bright light exposure. If you can't get outside into the sunlight, then that's where the, where the biohacking comes in, right? Then this, this is the case in my office. I have the red lights that I flip on when I get into my office in the morning. But then in addition to that, I have the blue lights. Everybody thinks, oh, the blue lights are bad for you. I hear people wear the blue light blockers and you're not supposed to see blue light. But the thing is, that's at night. Mm. In the daytime, in the morning, blue light's actually wonderful. It's fantastic because it gets your it gets your circadian rhythm jump started. I mean, that it's, even if you do like that high-dose melatonin that I was talking about, well, a lot of people will say, wait, I'm going to be groggy in the morning if I take a bunch of melatonin. The best way to get a bunch of mel melatonin out of what's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus in the brain is to get exposed to light, right? So even if you do that melatonin sledgehammer, if you're traveling, you're like, oh, I'm so groggy. I don't know what to do. You literally, you stare at the sun for like 10 minutes or get out in the bright light and you just feel like a new person. Like the grogginess is totally gone. And so what I'm getting at here is a bunch of bright light in the morning is really good, whether it's getting out in the sunlight or flipping on infrared lights in a room in your house and then pairing that with staring at a screen that's emanating blue light or even using one of those seasonal affective disorder boxes that produces blue light. That That's a really good combo because you got the blue light plus the infrared light. You blast yourself with that in the morning and then in the evening, you just get rid of as much external light as possible. Okay, so that's when the, the phone goes into night mode function and all the computers, I have a program called Iris that's installed on all the computers and that, that gets rid of all the blue light on the computer screen. And then you, you can wear the blue light blocking glasses. And then what my wife and I did in our house is we replaced all the bulbs in the areas of the house where you'd want to sleep or be relaxed. We replaced all those bulbs with red incandescent lighting, which is like this really soft orangish red uh, spectrum that doesn't block melatonin production and doesn't keep you awake at night. And so if I get up at night to pee and I flip on the bathroom light, it's just yeah. like red, right? It doesn't jolt me awake and I get back to sleep really well. And so it's, it's the presence of ton of light in the morning and, and like really going out of your way for absence of light. Like you should just be thinking at night, how can I turn the room and technically preferably even the house into a cold, dark cave with the only type of light in that cave being what my ancestors would have perceived as torchlight or firelight, which is where red incandescent bulbs are the way to go. They're a little bit more of an energy hog, but they're, they're just like torchlight. And then uh, the, 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 the temperature and the light is really important. But like I mentioned, the other two would be business and, and busyness in bed being something you should avoid. And then the sound. And for the former, like I used to be that guy who would check into a hotel room and like the laptop, you just slap down on the bed and, you know, 
jump onto the bed in your stomach, start banging out emails, you know, or maybe, you know, if, if, if you're, you know, hanging around at night in, in the room, you know, maybe you're, you're working on a few things or you have a business book next to bed. Like I have nothing like that now in my life, as far as the bed being associated with anything except sleep or sex. Like you just, you basically no TV in the bedroom, no computers in the bedroom, no business books in the bedroom that make you think about business. You just want the bed to be a super safe place. And in people who, for people who don't feel safe in bed, have like high nighttime cortisol and things like that. What works really well is a gravity blanket. You've mm. seen these before? Yeah. yeah. Weighted blankets. Yeah. It makes you feel safe. Like it actually induces a, that's, that's why it works. It's like this protective mechanism. You feel like you're in armor when you have this giant gravity blanket on top of you. And there's even companies like that, that chili pad company that I talked about, they make a gravity blanket that circulates cold water wow. through the blanket. So that's it doesn't cool. heat you up as much as that's much. It's kind of cool. And then the last part, the, the sound, um, I actually think that not enough people know about how much sound can help you to sleep. Mm. And so what I do is I play this app called Brain FM and it's it's these special sounds that induce your body into a state of relaxation that don't necessarily have to be played through headphones. So I can just play them without wearing headphones and then if I wake up at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. or I get up to pee and get back, get back to sleep or whatever. Then I have this other program called New Calm, N-U Calm, and I'll literally like put in headphones and they even make soft headphones for side sleepers like me. They're called sleep phones, like a headband that goes around wow. your ears. And I'll play the the New Calm uh, tracks through that and those things just lull you back into a deep state. Of, like I have to be careful because if I wake up at like five and I'm like, I'm just going to lay in bed a few more minutes, I put on the new calm. I'll sometimes wake up at 7.30. Like, well, what, what just happened? So, so those are the basics. I, I think those yeah. are the important things for sleep. It's really important. I see Amy over there taking notes. I just jotted that down. <laughs> Brain FM. So. Yeah. yeah. Or just drink a bottle of wine. And <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> so I, I, I can relate so much of this to my time in Africa because I was in a twig and leaf hut that was only four or five foot tall and the dirt was my bed and the fire was my blanket for mm -hmm. the most part. And I, you, I wouldn't think that those are conditions where I had to learn to sleep there the first couple of weeks. But after that, I slept like a baby because yeah. everybody woke up as the sun was coming up just naturally, no alarm clocks. Mm -hmm. and you fall asleep. I mean, you start getting sleepy when the sun goes down. You're in the rainforest, so it goes down even earlier, right? Right. So then they'll sit around the fire, we'll share stories, we'll sing, we'll dance, we'll eat. And then after that, everyone just goes back in and it's just conked out. And you're going to the sleep uh, or to the, you're going to sleep to the sound of the jungle, mm -hmm. the rainforest, and it's never quiet. So there's birds chirping, monkeys. I mean, just it's. Wait, it's there's not gorgeous. whales in the rainforest. No right? whales, okay, no whales, but hippos. You can, okay. hear hippos. Right. <laughs> you can hear hippos. You can hear hippos sometimes, and that was that was somewhere where I didn't feel like I now I had so much purpose. But me in my life, in my journey, like I've 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 struggled with uh, depression, with addiction, with different stuff. But when I was there, there was so much purpose, and so much community. And there wasn't so many distractions. I mean, I didn't have any cell service at all. So my phone was just a camera. And 
I, I think that having all those factors where you're not fighting the light, you're not doing work at night, like you're just with each other Yeah, and you can't be drilling wells in the dark. So yeah. you, you got to, we did once, uh, just cause we had to go through the collapsing zone and we had a fire next to it so we could drill by firelight basically. But man, that right there was a time that I feel like I connected back to like, I guess our original man or our ancestors, right? Because they were still hunter gatherers and it was so cool. Like dining, they would come back in like a king after, or I mean, just a celebration whenever they brought home a, a wild hog or a monkey or uh, an antelope and, or honey, like they would risk their lives to go climb trees and African bees or killer bees. And so they're climbing a hundred, sometimes over a hundred feet in the air to get this honey down and they're sending it down in a basket and there's smoke going up, but the smoke really doesn't um, take out the bees. Like they're getting stung like crazy. All their neighboring tribes don't understand how they can do they're it. They're killer bees though? They're killer bees. Are, th are they dying when they get stung? Or, no, no. They, some okay. reason, some reason, the Mabuti Pygmy people and the Batwa Pygmy oh, people. Oh, they have some kind of a- Some a, kind of uh, thing uh, that probably uh, from generations and generations, yeah. they can get stung by them. But anybody else, I mean, I would yeah, they're welt. they're naturally immune. I would welt huh. up like I got uh, like a little shotgun almost. Just from one sting, I would have all these whelps all around. And their neighbors too. Like the, their neighbors would say, we will die if we try to do that. Wow. But they don't. Wow. That's and, nuts. Do you, do you get, um, I guess you, maybe you don't anymore, but when you first started showing up over there, was it was it weird for that? Because you're like a big, hairy white dude. <laughs> Like, yeah. was it, was it, was it weird for them to, that were they, were they interested in, in just the fact that you're just so much different than them? Yeah. So I lived in a, probably I would say I lived in six villages, but we have helped drill wells in 80. And so I would spend time in a bunch of others as well. But the first time I came to, uh, one of the pygmy villages, they ran and hid behind trees when they saw me coming. They ran there. from you. Ran from me. Oh wow! And uh, they had bows and arrows um, drawn. They had spears. Over Did their you shoulders. think they were going to shoot you? Uh, I had learned a Swahili saying, "Nafika hapa kuwapinda, um, uh, Rafiki Yango." Like I'm your friend. Uh, I'm only here to love you. And they're like, "That's what Rafiki Yango means." Yeah, Rafiki uh, Yango. I'm your friend. Uh, okay. And then, uh, Nafika Hapakuapenda, I'm only here to love you. And Nafiki so. Nafiki Hakapuapenda. Yeah. Okay. Nafiki Hapakuapenda. Kuapenda, I'm here yeah. to love you. Yeah. Is that what you were saying? Yeah. And so hands up, like showing them, um, uh, you know, what's funny is the person they picked to come up and meet me, she was pregnant, probably like seven, eight months pregnant. And she had an infant that was maybe like a year or year and a half on her side and she came up to me and was real timid, real scared, kind of showing me like, Hey, I'm, I'm pregnant. I've got a baby. Like, don't hurt me. Don't kill me. That kind of thing. And then she touched me. She touched my forearm. I didn't know why I thought it was cause I have hairy arms and they don't have mm -hmm. body hair. They're like the men don't have facial hair. And really? so, yeah, I've seen like one or two grandfathers that had a little bit of a stubble, a little bit of a goatee, but never a beard. Okay. So I'm going in there. And they've literally nicknamed me the vanilla gorilla, the albino rhino, <laughs> the, all sorts of stuff. And uh, my fight name. The hairy uh, hippo. The hairy hippo. I there could be a very, very hairy hippo. <laughs> um, but they call me uh, Efeosa Mabuti Mangbo. And so Efeosa means the man that loves us. Uh -huh. I love that one. And Mabuti Mangbo means the big pygmy. 
And so oh, I'm just, wow. I'm just the big pygmy. Like, uh, a Paiave also is what sometimes I'd say. And that's like, he's one of us. Like, wow. And, but yeah, at first they were terrified. There was a video that was on YouTube that, uh, Jimmy Kimmel played in the today show. And it was the kids touching my arm hair, my beard hair, my hair. Whenever I bent over to give them my hair, they scattered and ran and were scared I was going to do something, I guess. But they, they came back laughing, giggling, filling my beard and everything. Wow. And so I'm, I'm like from another planet to them because I was the first white guy they'd ever seen in their lives. Um, hmm. And so very, very deep, very remote in the, into the rainforest. But I'd heard of their suffering and the United Nations had said there was like 34 counts of cannibalism against their tribe. So the warring rebel groups there think that if they can hunt, kill, cook, and eat someone from the pygmy tribe, um, that they will become invincible in battle, that bullets will fly right through them. And there's like, oh, wow. I think at the time there's 38, now there's like 44, 45 warring rebel groups. Wow. These rebel groups, I've seen some of them that finally got, uh, their leader got killed, their gold mines either ran dry, they ran out of ammo. And so they were taken out and I saw them walked through this forest, like it's not even a street, it's like red dirt. I've never been on a concrete or tarmac road there. And they were being walked through there with their elbows tied behind their back, almost like handcuffs where their elbows were almost touching uh -huh. and their heads, their necks were basically a rope to their, each one of their ankles. And so they're literally walking hunched over with their head almost as low as their knees and their elbows basically touching behind their backs and like 40, 50 guys who committed some of the worst human atrocities, um, rape, murder, um, all sorts of, uh, cannibalism. This, this tribe used to be, this wasn't the Copra Matata, it was the Mai Mai and they would drink from the pygmy people's skulls. Uh, before they go into battle and they would, oh they would have like a skull or two hanging from their belt loop. Um, and they've got, you know, all the ammo across and machine guns and they've got skulls hanging on, on the side of them. And, uh, so in the day that, 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 uh, rebel group was taken out and walked, marched right by us, um, two or three days before we were scared that we were going to have to flee because they had attacked a village nearby. Yeah. And, um, what was it? The, that was the first day we got a, a water well in there. And so, man, the celebration that night was epic because wow. first time they had clean water, this rebel group had been taken out. They were all arrested and we sing and dance. They say the three things you can't take from the pygmy people is the forest, the fire, and, uh, they're singing and dancing. Mm. So we sang and danced until the sun came up that wow. night and I went to bed drenched in sweat, hot, humid rainforest. It's so humid that you can see your breath almost like cold, Wow! but it's just so it's like a hundred percent humidity. I was yeah. never dry there. And so you're breathing, you're seeing that my cheeks are, are hurting from smiling so much. And, uh, uh and finally went to bed when the sun <laughs> was coming up and I just remember falling asleep, smiling. And I've never done that in my life. Just now, like when, when you're over there, are <clears throat> you, are you personally, uh, digging the wells? Yeah. So I helped drill the first 13 wells and but uh, the whole is, goal is a drill. Well, so there's different methods. Okay. Um, we do manual drilling and we do mechanized rigs. So manual drilling is where we can't take a truck because you can't get these big drills into the rainforest or up a mountain. Mm -hmm. Um, and these well drilling trucks can be $500,000, $750,000 and anything shiny 
there basically attracts trouble, like those rebel mm-hmm. groups. So, and they get so beat up on the roads because they're not even roads. Yeah. So it's like the maintenance on them is astronomical. Local parts aren't really accessible. Uh, so we do a lot of manual drilling. And the sweet spot in the rainforest is anywhere from 60 to 90 feet deep. We can go 150 feet deep with a manual drilling rig, but that's augers, chisels, single prong, triple prong chisels. It's uh, rock breakers that we're using literally a caterpillar tooth. And we put it into like a six or eight inch casing pipe. And then you you have a tripod and it's either it's on a rope or a chain to give it a little more weight. And you just keep pulling that, letting it go, pull it, let it go. And uh, it's like a, basically a machine gun or like a bullet in a barrel hitting the earth. If you're wow. in a, like a granite zone or something, you're, then you have to wrestle out whatever you break up down there. It's the hardest manual labor I've, I could ever imagine. Jeez. It's tough. So our well drillers there, like if I would say, if I'm in jujitsu, like a level, I'm like a blue or purple belt in well drilling, um, probably more of a blue, but now the guys we we've been training since 10 years ago, 11 years ago, those guys are brown belts, black belts, they're experts and they're training other teams. I got a well drilled at my property in Washington state and we actually had a well witcher come up really where they hold a a dowel Mm. and that dowel rotates in a certain manner when the well witcher is standing over a location where apparently two different uh, 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 waterways cross or a place where there, where there's like a, a, an area where there might be a collection of water underneath the surface. And I remember just being absolutely astounded when the well witcher walked around the property, reached a spot about, 50 feet from the front door of where we plan on building the house and just stamped his foot and said, drill right here. <laughs> and we drilled. And I, I don't know what would have happened. We would have drilled 10 feet away or, or, you know, or, or, you know, an acre away or whatever, but that was right where we hit really good water with a flow rate that was perfect for yeah. our house it, over there. How do they know where to drill? So <clears throat> we have a, um, Oh, E S V. Uh, electronic oh evs machine electronic vertical sound and so we use that and it's basically a pretty primitive tool where we've got like some prongs we put in the dirt and we've got like a car battery and we've got a laptop and it basically like sends these sound waves down and it shows you kind of the geological layers yeah at least what you can expect it shows you like the density of the soil and uh, kind of what to expect because yeah. it's going to well, be a little that, that makes sense. I mean, that that's how uh, yeah, people who have had their body fat tested by those scales that you stand on yeah. or, the, or the handheld bioelectrical impedance monitors. Yeah. Those are just pushing some kind of an electrical wave through the body that's bouncing off of fat and bone and muscle at various rates and coming back into the machine to be able to approximate your, your fat percentage. It sounds to me like it's something similar when, yeah. when you're drilling the wells. You're just literally like shooting a sound wave down in the earth yeah. and then the rate at which that bounces back up or how it bounces back up is reflective of whether you've whether it's hit dirt or mm-hmm. rock or water or what have you yeah and it's actually called a ves i got that right now so vertical electronic sound okay and so we didn't have that the year i was there and so that was like a guessing game i wish we could have had a witcher from washington come over because there's guys in oklahoma that swear by it and they're like no this dude's legit and he yeah. knows he knows it every time yeah. But we would, we would drill and normally we'd do it where their huts were set up and try to do it in the center 
of the village, but sometimes the earth doesn't want to cooperate with you while you're wrestling it. So we'd have to pick it up and move a football field away. And then we'd hit water there. You know, one time it took, oh, we drilled for 28 days and we thought we had it. And the whole thing just collapsed on us. It was very like, um, there was a lot of clay, um, and like silt and we, we got through it, but it just wasn't going to be a viable option. So after 28 days of drilling, we had to pick up and move. And so the difference between mechanized drilling and manual is we can do wells in five to 10 days, uh, with manual drilling. And that's only like, but it can be longer. And then with the mechanized rigs, you can bust them out in a few days. Once you get the well in the ground, are you putting like a pump system or something right there where you've drilled? It depends on what is best and most sustainable for the, the locals there. A lot of times the hand pump serves them really well. I mean, it can serve up to a thousand people. I mean, that's, that's not putting it through a lot of stress. It's just, it takes time. It takes like two minutes to fill up a 20, uh, 20 liter, five gallon jerry can or four gallon. I think it's five gallons. And so it takes about two minutes of a, a person or a jerry can. Wow. And so if there's a thousand people, um, that can take a little bit of time, you know, there can be a line. So, but we, it's basically a hand pump where the pump's just at the bottom. We have uh, slits in the side of the casing and then we put a gravel pack down on the side of it. Mm-hmm. And then at the top we have, um, impermeable clay for about three meters so nine feet. And then we have another three meters or nine feet of, uh, like a cement seal because the, what you don't want is groundwater going down into the well, because that will, this impermeable clay, each meter takes a hundred years for surface water to go through it. And so it could take two, 300 years to just get through that impermeable clay. So, but if you don't put that there, now it's like a highway of pathogens that can go from because the, the groundwater level. carries the pathogens down into the well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we have to make sure that they don't have that. And we we for especially for the actually the wells are the same, but we make sure we drill a well fifty at least fifty meters away from any sort of trash site. And we make sure we train the village, let them know, hey, there's no dumping trash within yeah. this radius. That seems prudent. Don't make, don't yeah. pee in this hole. Yeah, make sure yeah. that there's no latrines close by. Yeah. I mean, you'll you'll see that people don't educate a lot of the locals there. And a lot of the old fashioned, even still today, traditional well drilling model or nonprofit model is there's a lot of funds and a high quota. And so they just fly in there, bust in. I call it the show up, blow up and blow out technique. So there's no locals that are trained on one, how to drill the well. So that's why we train all the locals, how to drill the wells, maintenance it, repair it. And it becomes their business. It's their livelihood yeah. and it's their buy-in. And we have a local contribution for the the village to say, Hey, we want you guys to come here. We make an agreement. Then they provide like food and shelter and uh, accommodations for our guys, or even like a contribution of like a hundred, 200 bucks, even though it's like a $5,000, $10,000 well, something to say they have some skin in the game instead yeah. of just coming in and doing it for free. And then if they think it's our well, not their well, then if it breaks, then they think, oh, well, they'll come back and fix it. But a lot of the traditional models with other NGOs, like none of the local villagers have the phone number for the guy that lives in Georgia or whatever. Then he yeah. has to fly back out there, fix it again. There's over 230,000 broken wells in Africa right now. And that's billions of wasted charitable dollars because the locals weren't empowered. They weren't equipped with the tools, educated with the knowledge. 
It was like they were put on the sidelines. But the, the could bench. the wells still function? They, yeah, you they could go just, in and repair just them. Just the, the pump mechanisms are broken? <clears throat> yeah. Sometimes it's just like a, a coupler or a coupling that yeah. it just needs to be replaced. That's like a 50 cent fix, Yeah, you know, or $2 fix. Um, uh, upwards is, I mean, 300, it depends on what pump it is. It can be a thousand dollars, but most of it is, it's locally affordable for a village to contribute and fix it themselves. And is this the primary thing that you're doing with fight for the forgotten is the wells? We do community development. So stateside, we do bullying and suicide prevention in schools. Um, but overseas where we started, we do land water food initiatives. Right now we're building a community hub. So we've done 80 water wells. We've gotten back over 3,000 acres of the rainforest for the Pygmy people. And then also in Uganda, we have more than 50 acres that we're building. We've already built 28 homes. There's going to be 32 homes total because the Batwa Pygmy people were kicked out of the rainforest. They were kicked out of the Similiki National Park. Hmm. It was their traditional home for thousands of years. And I won't say the organization, but there's a lot of people lobbying saying we need to get them out of there. And it's hmm. corruption because they say it's for protection of wildlife. Really it's for safaris or it's really? uh, yeah. Or it's oh, protection man. of the rainforest and it's they're sad. still going in there and cutting down trees. Yeah. And then, so they take the, the indigenous people out of their environment, which they've always thrived in. And then they put them on, there's over 300 people from the Batawa village of King Zito that we work with. Over 300 people put on one acre of land, one acre of land behind a slum and, and that slums throwing out their sewage. It's Jeez. by these bars and clubs. People are drunk. They come there, they assault them, rape them, all sorts of terrible things. And so we got them 50 acres, a little bit away from there. It's a two hour walk, but they're wanting to go there anyways, because there's their homes. They're going to have farms. So we're starting up sustainable farms. There's clean water. There's power with solar. Um, in each family, each household has uh, a home, but that over 300 people in just a few years from sickness, disease, they dropped and even suicide, they dropped to, uh, 158 people because they were, wow. yeah. And the chief was like, I think we're going to go extinct. Like our people won't survive. Like we're, we're just going to die off cause we're not in the forest. One day we'd like to get them land back in the forest in Uganda, but right now they're not working with us for that. Hmm. So we're building the school. They have the homes. Um, the nearest school to them now is over two hours away anyways. Nearest hospital is over two hours away anyways. Um, and whenever they are going to the hospitals, they're being denied hospital treatment. That's why I, I buried that young man, Andy Bo, that I told you about. Yeah. And, um, when they die and they're not even treated, they're not letting them reclaim their bodies. So they're literally saying you have to, you have to pay a hundred dollar bribe. And these are people that a either don't get paid in money or B mm. they might make 3,700 Ugandan shillings in a week or eight or nine days of work. That's yeah. a dollar. Now they're asking them for you to be able to bury your family member with honor. It's going to be a hundred dollars. Wow. And then, yeah. So we're moving them out of that environment into a little bit more rural area where three other communities are welcoming them there <clears throat> because we're going to have a community hub with the health center, the school, <clears throat> excuse me. And then we're doing a business marketplace. So there's going to be like vocational training there. Um, we're going to be working with a lot of American universities that are like Skyping in. So there'll be a technology center where they'll be teaching the nurses and doctors like better, best practices, better procedures, 
things like that. And so we'll be wow. low hanging fruit, tackling malaria, waterborne disease. Who there. funds all this? So we do it through raising funds with donors. Luckily we've had over 10,000 donors from all 50 states in 60 different countries. And so a lot of them are one-time donors, but right now we're trying to push and, and get uh, people to join our fight club, which is our monthly giving club. Because if we know this many people are giving $5 a month or $25 a month or just this amount per month, we can plan out our budget and make sure, hey, this health center is going to be built here at this time. And it will have the maternity ward and the pediatrics unit and the dental suite. And it's going to have the ER and the triage center. And if we have this many people given a month over the next year, the school will be built by this time. And um, so it, we're really excited about it, man. But it's all yeah. been donations. When we were driving over here, you said that you'd gotten a parasite over there yeah. and, and some pretty significant infections that, that even affected your, your, your brain and, and some of these medications that you had to be on were pretty nasty as well. When, when you, when, when you go over there, when, when was the next time you, you're headed over? It's supposed to be going in June. Okay. So, so June and it's uh, May right now. So pretty soon. Yeah. Do you get nervous thinking, gosh, I I wonder what I'm going to get this time. I wonder what I'm going to get. Like, it's got to be kind of harrowing just going all the way over there and just, especially as a guy who's kind of into health like you are, like yeah. not knowing, gosh, what, what kind of crazy critter is going to wind up in my gut or in my brain this time. Yeah. Well, I always thought it was part of it, but now that as I age and that I'm coming back to fighting, I want to be a lot smarter where <clears throat> when I lived there for the full year and I built up two years in total now, I mean, there was just no way to make sure what I was eating was safe um, because- the person that washed the knife, like you think it was clean, but when they slice into whatever it is. So basically if you can't boil it, if you can't uh, cook it or peel it, like don't eat it. Mm -hmm. But I did that rule last time I went to Uganda and I got food poisoning. Um, still, I think it was just probably some, a little bit too aged of, of meat, yeah. just chicken and, uh, tasted fine. But then afterwards I was just, I, I, I just sick. have a giant backpack full of like, keto bricks or something yeah yeah that, that's i'll I, probably i'll probably take my food with me this next yeah. time but it's just yeah. different man going into a village when they they want to prepare this food for you they want to make sure that you're taken care of and uh, it's sitting around the fire having those conversations eating their food that they worked hard to prepare for you so seeing about those but they know me and so now i can say hey i've, I've got to protect my gut you know it's not been yeah. doing good and it's gonna yeah. be a shorter trip this time it's gonna be like two weeks or so yeah yeah well it'll be good yeah and I, I actually i was just uh, i was just hiking with, with my family in the Grand Canyon and in Sedona for, oh, for nice. about 10 days. That's where days. we met with yeah, Sedona. We, uh, beautiful mm -hmm. area. We, I think we, we covered like 80, 90 miles of, of hardcore hiking over about 10 days as a family, which was, which was great. But I, I actually, that's actually what I was eating. Literally, there's like a couple of these a day, and that's that's all, that was 99% of my diet was keto bricks. They're, they're these 1,000-calorie. They're a 1,000-calorie, wow. 90% fat energy bar. Okay, I'm probably going to take. They're not really a bar. They're like a brick, and I'm serious. Like, if I on a on a normal week, if I open a keto brick and I start to eat it, like on a Monday, you know, maybe put a few little chunks of it on my smoothie or whatever, it will last me until like Friday or Saturday. Like, it takes wow. me four or five days to eat a whole bar. You know, they got flavors like peanut butter and chocolate cream, yeah. and chocolate peanut butter. They're actually pretty good. They, Did you take a note of that? Breaks. It just, You're pulling it's just, it up. It's just I looked like it up. pure freaking mm -hmm. fat. Yeah, awesome. that's a great idea. There's there's a guy. Uh, there, can we show that, Mike? You Is probably okay? can. There, yeah. There's there's this there ketone are. researcher named Dominique D'Agostino 
and he's, pull that he's, picture up? he's really well known for yeah. being like one of the smart guys in keto. And I heard him talking about these. He's like, yeah, the only energy bar is the keto brick. So I ordered a few <laughs> and uh, as advertised, like that, like there, you could, you could eat one, but it's literally like a thousand calories. Like wow. if I eat a whole one, I kind of feel sick. Like it's okay. not that many calories. One. <laughs> well, I might take yeah. those with me and, yeah. uh, that'd be smart. That'd be really smart. No, but I've had malaria three times. I've had dengue fever. Um, I've had Shigella, which is an intestinal Yeah, I've heard uh, of that one. That's pretty nasty. It's yeah. nasty. Real nasty. Yeah. Had a bunch of other stuff. Schistosomiasis, which yeah. is a parasite in the skin. Yeah. It's in, I was bathing in a creek and it, there's snails in the water and those have now, that do, parasite. Do you, uh, do you know about oil of oregano? Using oil of oregano? I took, I took I, it with I me. That's, that's top of the totem there. pole for, for parasites, in my opinion. Okay. Yeah. And, and parasites are interesting because they have these life cycles in which they kind of like breed and pop out their ugly heads like like at different times throughout a 24-hour cycle. And so the best way to – because I've, I've actually had a couple of parasites myself, nothing near what, what you've had to deal with. But these parasite eradication protocols, a lot of times you'll, you're dosing like three to five times a day just – hoping that at Pokes some point when the parasite's there, like the oregano is going to hit it. But oregano has a component in it called carvacrol and carvacrol is just like kryptonite for parasites. And, and so like a typical protocol is like three times a day, you put a few dropperfuls of a really good potent pungent oil of oregano into a glass of water and just drink it down. Wow. Yeah. You gotta be well, careful though. Cause oregano is super caustic, yeah. super caustic. Like if you get a hundred percent, it'll burn holes. Like you get blisters. A lot of oh, people wow. like order essential oil and not realize it's not diluted. So you want to make sure it's like a good diluted oil of oregano, but that stuff is, it's, it's pretty potent for, for traveling, for parasites, for gut issues. It's kind of like, um, it's one of those things that's been in my medicine cabinet since I read this book called the cures in the cupboard and the cures in the cupboard. All that whole book is about is the wonders of, oil of oregano which it, even in the bible it's it's uh uh there's there's a verse in the bible that says something like cleanse me with hyssop and i will be white as snow i think it's in the psalms and hyssop h-y-s-s-o-p is oregano okay yeah have you heard of the book where there are no doctors no so i had it's a book that a lot of missionaries and human, humanitarians uh that go to africa everyone has it with them and I learned about it there when I was sick. And I was, so what I did take was a bunch of kind bars with me and a bunch of mm -hmm. almonds. Mm -hmm. Took like pounds and pounds of almonds with me. But what I didn't know was that almonds can trigger um, uh, sh shingles. 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 Really? Yeah. It can trigger shingles, no herpes, kidding. cold sores, all that. If you eat too many of them and you get depleted and it can, it can trigger uh, herpes virus type stuff. So wow. while I was there, I was eating pounds of almonds and I got shingles three or five times in the year that I was there three, three, wow. three or five times. I've, I've had it five times. So, so I think I had it three times there and the other two times and it would be in my hairline all the way down to my ear. And it was brutal. I mean, I was, I was in my twenties when I lived there for a year. Yeah. And, it uh, says it, it contains, uh, the amino acid <clears throat> arginine. Is that my yeah, right? yeah, ar 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 arginine, arginine. I mean, that that's arginine. not necessarily something that that that's harmful. That amino acid, yeah. but I, I, I honestly, I, I can't even begin to to know what the mechanism of action would be. I know almonds, like high high dose almonds, kind of like apple seeds. You can get like some amount of cyanide from them. Oh, really? Maybe something yeah, like that. I mean, any, that's any, what it gave me. anything's bad for if you eat enough. Of yeah, it. I was yeah. eating copious amounts, yeah. but they, the this pilot and his wife 
opened the book and she said, take lysine. They were trying to give me, mm. they're trying to give me, Another <clears throat> yeah, trying to give me some sort of, um, not antibiotic, but antiviral. Mm-hmm. And they only had like small ones of them and they were old and they're like, don't take that, take lysine. And it was like the third time that I had it and I take lysine and it cleared up so fast, the shingles so fast. Now I take lysine as a preventative to make yeah. sure I don't get shingles again. Yeah. And, um, huh. the other two times I've had shingles, I just took lysine at one way real quick. My mom um, takes lysine for cold sores. It's nothing you yeah. use that yeah. for. Yeah. yeah. So cold sores, uh, shingles, and I think herpes, they say lysine helps mm-hmm. with. So yeah. Yeah. Wow. wow. Yeah. Anyways, it's crazy. Random fact, but where there are no doctors, they had tons of like homeopathic or natural ways yeah. to treat things. Yeah. And wow. then talking about your, um, oregano, does your wife like it when you kiss her after the oregano? <laughs> <laughs> it smells like a giant Italian pizza. No, I mean, it actually reminds me of like my kids are into corny dad jokes now. So you just reminded me of what did you hear about the Italian <laughs> chef who died? No, he passed away. Um, so, anyways, back to the. Back to I don't get it. <laughs> oh no, you don't get it. I'm, I, it's a bad joke. But I have to explain it. You'll get it eventually. Okay. He passed oh, away. You think, you think about it. He passed away. He passed away. But, oh, he passed away. Okay, now she gets that on that on Ching. So, so uh, I I don't do oil. So I'll use oil oregano preventively, like when I travel. And half the time when I travel, my wife isn't with me anyway, so I don't have to worry about it. But uh, no, it's it's not too. If anything, it's like it's a little minty, you know, like peppermint. So it mm-hmm. kind of make will make your breath smell. We have decent. some. We have yeah. some at home. Yeah. Okay. Some. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm gonna yeah. start taking it. But I'm no, careful. My, with my it. wife and I are not like, in the dragon breath. Like we do, we'll, we'll kiss each other in the morning sometimes. But each of us, like on our respective sides of the bedside, there's this company called the Dirt, and they make breath spray. And we both have our minty breath spray that we, we spray <laughs> in our mouths before we kiss each other in the morning, just to be nice to each other. <laughs> yeah. But well, so yeah. you have a parenting book coming out, and what what was the motivation of that? And then. Also, I'd love to talk about you and your relationship with your wife. I, I told How ben, are your kids? Oh, they're, they're 14 years old. And yeah, they're my, twin, my they're wife, twins. My wife, Jess, and I have been married for 19 years. And she's, she's amazing. Oh, my goodness. Like, she's just an angel. She's and a track star at we, Idaho. We love each other so much. She's a, she, uh, she was uh, track and field. She ran track and field at the University of Idaho. And uh, it's kind of funny because now she plays a ton of tennis. She plays tennis like every day. So, and I don't play at all anymore, right? So, so for me teaching her how to play tennis, now she plays all the tennis, and I, I sit at home. And uh, yeah, I have been asked so many times about writing a parenting book because mm. my sons are—they're just so cool. They're so special, and they're amazing. And I, I, don't, I don't think I've done anything that that special with them. You know, we have we have certain rituals and routines and, and methods of parenting that we can get into if you want to, but. When people have been asking me to write a parenting book, to write a family book, because I've been talking a lot about parenting and family, because it's just my life. I mean, mm. like my purpose statement in life right now is is to love God through prayer and worship, and to love my family by preparing and providing. And the business is an afterthought. Right? By preparing like, I got, and providing, got to make money. But yeah, but the business is an afterthought. Like I just want to be there for my family during this formative chapter of my son's life. Mm. And as a parent, you you do have to accept the fact that if you want to really raise impactful, resilient, loved children, there are some of your own dreams and passions and desires you have to put on hold for a little while. Like I've accepted the fact there are certain adventures. Like I was going to go on a 10 day, you know, fishing and, and bow hunting trip up in Alaska, like a solo trip. And I thought, God, 
it's 10 days without my sons. There's no reason I can't do that trip when I'm 46 or 40, you know, when they're, when they're in college or when they're, when they're out of the house. So, so this phase of my life, I've realized, gosh, like, like aside from just loving God and building my faith up, which is so fulfilling to me, I just want to be there for my sons and for my wife. And so that's my number one purpose in life right now, over and above, you know, business and books and, and, you know, podcasts and speaking and all this stuff that's kind of like Ben, Ben, Ben. It really is about my family. And and because I've been spending so much time with my family and just really, really focused on what do good parents do and how do you raise young, impactful, resilient children uh, who are going to grow up to make this world a better place and how do you how do you stay in love with and married to your, your spouse? A lot of people started asking me that, to write a book, like, like that my next book should be a parenting book. And I thought, well, well gosh, like I – my sons are only 14. Who's to say they're not going to wind up in prison when they're, they're 16 or 17? You're not like, done yet. I don't, yeah, like, I'm not done yet. They're not cooked. They're not cooked the yet. Proof. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cake isn't out of the oven yet. You're, you're in the process. So, so yeah. I thought, well, geez, like I, I could at least you know, talk about, and my wife could talk about the things that we've learned up to this point, you know, consequential based parenting and legacies and playbooks and rituals and routines and rites of passage and all the things that we've woven into our sons' lives. But I thought, gosh, I should just like make a list of the most amazing parents I know with the most amazing kids I know and then ask them all a bunch of questions about parenting. And that's what I did. Like I, I developed a year ago about 32 different questions that I think are just like the best questions for parents. Like what kept you awake at night worrying that you were messing up with your kids or did you ever have imposter syndrome as a parent or how did you handle passing on wisdom to your children without making them feel at the same time that they were having to, to, to adults too early, you know, based on everything you were trying to teach them. And, you know, and, and how did you carve out one-on-one -on -one time with your kids and how do you engage in your own self-care. So I, I identified about 60 parents, figuring I'd maybe get like a 40, 50% return rate on the number of parents who would actually want to contribute to the book. And uh, I think uh, last count, I got about 28 of them and uh, parents, like really, really great parents. And they're all replying and sending me audio. So I spend half my day now just editing down audios and transcripts from all these parents and learning all sorts of cool cool techniques and tactics that they're using for for just just making amazing children. It's interesting. You see these these common threads pop up. Like every single parent has some type of scheduled, intentional, one-on-one -on -one time calendared with their child on at least a monthly basis. Every couple who's happy and together has like either a quarterly or a biannual, uh, I forget a biannual, is that once every two years or twice a year? I don't, I don't remember. But it's twice <laughs> a year, they'll get off and they'll go off together on, on like an isolated couples retreat for family planning. Like I was telling you about in the sauna, Justin, like like me and my wife do. And they, they most of them use, use a form of parenting Parenting is based on consequences, right? Educating your child about the natural consequences of any decision that they might make in life and then letting them deal with the consequences of that decision rather than just telling the kid, no, don't do this. No, don't do that. Just follow my orders versus, yo, here's what's going to happen if you whatever – eat gluten, do drugs, you know, watch porn, whatever. Now you go out and figure out if you want to do it. I'm just going to warn you, like, here's the natural consequences. Then you let them live with the consequences, unless they're super dire. Like you get your two-year-old at the edge of a cliff or something. You're obviously not going to tell them, you know, cliff might hurt a little bit. You pull them off the cliff. But um, I'm, I'm learning all these common threads and piecing together this parenting book. And it's it's just amazing. Like, I, I really think it's it, it's a book I wish had existed when I first became a parent because I'm just learning so much from all these parents. And and gosh, I, I think the biggest thing, the biggest thing I've learned 
that has been the just the best, most magical thing for our family and for my own purpose and, and legacy as a parent was this idea of branding the family the same way that you would brand a business. Mm. Okay, so I hooked up with this guy named Rich Christensen in Utah who has a company called Legato, and they specialize. He used to be a business branding expert, and now all he does is, is he helps families build strong families and brand their family. So we went and spent about- come from the name like Legacy? Yeah, Legato? yeah, Legato, Legacy, I'm pretty sure. And so <clears throat> we went and spent a few days with him after I read this book called Habits of the Rockefellers and, and about how a lot of these, these wealthy, successful, impactful families have certain elements like a family trust and a family constitution and a family legacy and a lot of, 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 of kind of behind the scenes corporate structures in place that allow for the family to basically continue to accumulate wealth, to continue to, to uh, accumulate values and traditions that get passed down from generation to generation so that you don't create a uh, an all too common rags to riches to rags scenario, mm. right? Which is a lot of times what you see, especially in America, like, like, uh, somebody like, like, a, a set of parents, they're not super well off. They work really hard, you know, nose to the grindstone, put in the work, chop wood, carry water, accumulate wealth. And then their children are raised in a wealthy family, given a silver spoon. They kind of get lazy. They slack off a little bit. They squander the family wealth. They get poor. They mess up. And then their children are poor. And then you start that whole rags to riches to rags scenario again, which really ultimately never really builds up generational impact, generational wealth, generational health, any of those type of things that you'd ideally want. In, in in your legacy as a parent. Like when I think about my great grandkids and my great great grandkids, I think, gosh, I'm not just raising my kids. I'm raising my grandkids. I'm raising my great grandkids. Like what I do with my sons is what they're going to do with their sons is what they're going to do with their sons and daughters. And so uh, what we did with Rich was we developed uh, family values, a family mission statement, a family crest, family rituals and routines and traditions that are playbooked. Like they're all in a book. Like here's what we do with our kids when they're eight. Here's when we have the sex talk. Here's when we go through their rite of passage into adolescence. Here's when they go through their rite of passage into adulthood. Uh, here's when they quit getting money from mom and dad and have to have to make money for themselves. Here's what we do at Thanksgiving. Here's what we do at Christmas. Here's what we do at Easter. Like it's literally, and it, it sounds like it sucks all the passion and sacredness and enjoyment of parenting and makes it sound like stale and business-like, but it's not like that at all. Like this is just like a playbook for our family. And I know that when my sons get married and they have kids, they can just take that playbook and be like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. Like these are all the Greenfield family values and we've got the Greenfield family logo. Like you come up to our house and there's flags on either side of the door with the whole logo with each of our colors and symbols and <laughs> spirit animals on it. And we got our family crest hanging above the fireplace and the family mission statement prominently displayed in the living room. And we're drinking out of mugs in the morning with our family logo on them. And there's like this pride, you know, you're, you're Greenfield. This is what the Greenfield stand for. This is what the Greenfields look like. This is what the Greenfield logo is like. And gosh, I think I think of of everything that I've I've learned and done as a parent. This idea of like intentionally like branding the family and treating it almost like a business has just been so impactful. What do you tell families that don't have a name? Like like my daughters each have a different last name than me, and then Justin's there. Too. We all have different last names. So I mean, what do you tell families that are more mixed like that about 
we're not going to have a common name. Do we make up our own for our branding or what What would that yeah, be? Yeah, well, when you say you don't have a common name, what, what do you mean? Well, like my last name is Edwards and yeah. then I have a daughter that's a weaver. I have one that's green and uh-huh. he has a red. ex-husband. Yeah. So yeah, they yeah. have uh, different fathers that I'm divorced yeah. from. And so, you know, um, I love the idea of creating our own traditions yeah. and things like that yeah. and building into that. So we have a more far-spreading family on right. both their sides, which I respect. They do have my last name as their middle name, but you know, as a woman too, I don't necessarily I like my last name, but I don't necessarily have to brand with that. Yeah, you know? Yeah. So a name, I don't know a what name that is just like. a name, right? Name is just semantics. Mm-hmm. I think it's more important to recognize, okay, well, I've got this group of people. We're close knit, we're, we're we're blood bonded, we're relatives, we're a tribe, whatever. And call it whatever you want to call it. Just and name call, your call tribe. Yourself, call yourselves the wolf pack. I mean, I don't <laughs> matter, matter, but but it's more the this idea, not necessarily yeah, not necessarily the brand being important, but the identity being important right we know about this like seth godin's written the book tribe which yep. is a great kind of business book it's like oh well you got to have a language and you got to have an identity and got to have a leader and you got to have an enemy right like these are all the components of whether in business or in family or you know in community-based membership website or whatever you create a tribe and that's basically what you're building is a tribe with a common language and a common set of symbols and a common set of values and beliefs and preferably some type of common mission yeah. that that the family's moving it's towards. like a north star this is where we're headed yeah this is the mission statement this right. is i mean we fight for the forgotten we've got we've got uh our vision statement is to defeat hate with love and our mission statement is to defend the weak love the unloved and empower the voiceless and the way that we do that's through community development but the that's been our guiding light where it's like if we just drilled water wells you know, that would be in the mission statement if we just do this, but we do more than that. What does the community need? And through that, being able to meet certain needs, we've been able to see 1,651 people transition out of literal slavery into freedom. And it's like, well, this won't work in this community, but this will, because this is our guiding light. Is it defeating hate with love? Is it like putting love and compassion in action? Mm-hmm. Then, then we're going to do it if we can meet that need. Yeah. And so that's, that would be really great to have for our family mm-hmm. and yeah. so it's it's so cool i mean the, yeah. and, and honestly like the coolest part of it in my opinion is the crest yeah like we i literally <laughs> had like a metal sculpture uh, d- uh, design this crest that's got it's a giant shield that represents our faith and it's got all these stones on the outside with each of our family symbols carved into it and every time that a new child or grandchild is added to the family their symbol gets carved into these stones wow. along the outside and the crest has all of our spirit animals on on it and and our our family logo in the center of it and all sorts of little like insider family secrets all within it, it hangs above <laughs> the fireplace and just this massive like 200 pound piece of metal art and when i walk in the door and I look at that i mean like i get the whole idea you know these days especially of being flexible and nomadic and you know living in airbnbs and working on your laptop from a beach in thailand but i'm one of those guys who's like I won't be a king of a castle. I will come come home and you know and and my wife's there and she's happy and, and my sons are stable and I got a castle and a crest above the fireplace. And I, <laughs> that's just the kind of guy I am. Like I, I just like to ha- I like to come home and just have this castle and I got a crest in my castle that just represents my legacy and my family. It's so meaningful. It's so cool. That's really great. <clears throat> what do you think is one of the most important parts to a not just successful parenting but successful relationships? Maybe specifically with with uh, you know your wife, your yeah. partner. Yeah, 
They've been oh. married 19 years. I know. I heard. And, yeah. That's awesome. Uh, I hope yeah. that we're going to be married at least 19 <laughs> years or more. Yeah. Careful what you wish for. Uh, <laughs> no, it is, it is pretty amazing. And I definitely our practice, like I briefly alluded to earlier, of carving out intentionally mm. calendared uh, retreats, like, like either quarterly, minimum of two times a year, we get off and we're just on our own for two or three days, my wife and I. And the entire thing is, it's not just like, you know, go to fancy restaurants and drink wine, but, but you, it's, it's more like us sitting in a hotel room on two chairs, face to face talking for like four or five hours. Or, you know, sometimes we, we will, uh, partake in some kind of a plant medicine, like, uh, like MDMA or some kind of a heart opener and sit with each other in that setting for the first day of the retreat and then move on and just talk and integrate and discuss everything that's been on our minds for the past few months when we're in kind of that different state away from business, away from kids, away from family, sometimes in a state where our egos are a little bit more dissolved and we're just together planning. That's a huge one. Um, of course, the the daily rituals, the daily comings and goings are super important too. Uh, and what I mean by that is, for example, we meditate together as a family every morning. That's not long, you know, especially with kids and a family and people going 10 different directions. Like you're not going to do 40 minutes of meditation in the morning as a family in most cases. Uh, so we meditate for 10 minutes in the morning as a family. We're all sitting cross-legged on the living room floor at 730 in the morning and we're doing a, a gratitude and a service and tapping and breath work and uh, and 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 praying and just basically coming together as a family to bookend the day and i mean bookend because in the evening same thing 10 minutes uh, in the kids bedroom at night after i've read a story to them and played them a song we finish up with evening meditation and then my wife and I pray together every night. Very last thing we do, whether you know we, we've, we've made love or talked or read books or whatever, when our heads hit the pillow, the very last thing that happens is we pray together. And we just basically just commit our, our lives to God and ask for wisdom and discernment in raising our sons and, and ask for, for, for health and energy for the next day and even talk about struggles that we've been having. And so we, we pray together every night. Uh, and then uh, at least once a month, which doesn't sound like very often, but it's it's typically more often once a month, but at least once a month, we do one-on-one dates, of course, you know, just just go off on, which doesn't sound that frequent. But yeah, when you have kids and a whole bunch of stuff going on, believe, believe me, it's hard to, to carve out those one-on-one time for dates, but those are always calendar, they're, they're on the schedule. And so it's a lot of intentional, you know, scheduling and, and calendaring, but those, those retreats and the nightly prayer times and the morning and the evening meditations are really crucial for us. And then I would say the last thing, the last thing, and this is tricky because in America, uh, there's this kind of like keeping up with the Joneses type of mentality. You uh, want to make sure that your children are four sport athletes and that if all the other kids are driving to jujitsu in the morning and football in the evening and baseball in the afternoon and swim lessons, whatever, like your kids just got to be in all these activities all the time because otherwise they're going to fall behind. They're not going to get a college scholarship. They're not going to be the star quarterback. Like, as you know, America is very much in the what have your kids achieved and what have they achieved in, in comparison to your neighbors or your friends, your community. And uh, we, we don't really focus on any of those things at all as a family. As a matter of fact, every night at our house, starting about 7 p.m., is a giant party. Our whole really? family. We come together. Yeah. We're singing songs. We're dancing in the kitchen. We're dancing around the table. <clears throat> awesome. We're making food together. We're making desserts together. We're cooking. We're playing music. We drag out card games and board games. We play games. And, and when I say party, I don't even know how much people over. It's literally just me and my wife and my sons. 
And we're just having an amazing time for like two hours every single night. And that idea of like a family dinner, that's almost like a non-negotiable. Unless there's some crazy stuff going on that day. Like we got we got family dinners every single night. And that process of coming together, gathering together, cooking together, dining together, cleaning together, and then heading up into the bedroom for story time and songs. It's just, it's, it's, it's so magical and so much more meaningful and so much, so much, so much more stabilizing for my sons than just the family being scattered to the four corners of the earth all day long and passing like ships in the night. So we're very nuclear, very bonded, very together. And that's, that's very ritualized. That's awesome. And that, from seven to nine, do you guys put put phones down, put them away, or do you guys well, have them, or are they well, just kinda... the, so in our house, there's no rules on screen time. There's no okay. rules on video. There's, there's almost no rules. Period in our house. Like I mentioned, we just educate on the consequences. Then mom and I set a good example. So yeah, phones are around, but nobody's using them. Like I'm 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 of the mentality that if there's enough fun things around to do that give you an alternative to the screen then you're going to engage in those activities. Yeah. So yeah, my phone said, you know, we'll be eating steak at the at the dinner table and my phone will be over in the kitchen. It'll be it'll be on and maybe it'll be vibrating or whatever. Like it's not like I'm going to go do that thing where people put their phone in the freezer on ice or, you know, activate the app that locks you out for 2 hours. I think all that stuff's gimmicky. I'm like, no, just make it make it fun, make fun. and and you know, if the phone's around, somebody want if we're playing Scrabble and somebody wants to look up whether it's a legal word in Scrabble on Google or whatever, yeah. go for it. And the new playlist, um, you got to change the right, song. Right, exactly. We'll yeah. be changing the playlist or whatever, yeah. but it's like, yeah, the phones are just there as a tool but yeah nobody's even into them because we're just enjoying each other much more than that we've been having a lot of family game nights i would say a lot i mean we can do it even more. we always do it at least once a week yeah tuesdays yeah. and it's it's so fun but since yeah. they go to their dads and stuff and spend half the time we have to prioritize it kind of in a different way you know yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but it's important and even tomorrow you were saying oh i want to record this podcast and stuff and you i was like change. tuesday nights off off the off ch- off, that's off limits. That's our family night. That's what we do. Yeah. You know? so, it's, and they it's, know that. Uh, we know that. And so it's like yeah. the best 25 bucks that we spend every month. Cause I, I usually about once a month, I'll take my sons on a date to Barnes and Noble. You know, one thing in our house is unless it's like Captain Underpants or Diary of a Wimpy Kid or something like that, like I'll buy them any book their heart desires. Like books are the one thing where I'm just like, yeah, I'll buy that for you. I don't care. I'll do that. <laughs> I'll do that till I'm dead. Like if my <laughs> sons want a book, I'll buy them a book. Uh, and 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 I take them to Barnes and Noble, but we we pick out a game. We pick out a new game. You know, average price of a cool, we do it cool new game, you know, <clears throat> chameleon or, or, or telestrations, you know, or a new form of Scrabble or Monopoly or whatever. It's like 25 bucks. And that will afford us hours upon hours of entertainment for the rest of the month as we all play this game. And the kids learn game theory, right? They learn rhetoric and logic and reasoning and argumentation and strategy and 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 and, and, uh, um, and um, uh, scarcity and abundance and demand and price setting and all these things that you learn from playing games. And so not only are they learning, but man, I mean, that's like half the cost of what it would take to take the entire family out to the movie theater. And we're literally like for 25 bucks having amazing fun for the entire month. And then when we kind of get tired of the game and hang it up, we go buy a new game and rinse, wash and repeat. And it's super fun. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> I, um, <clears throat> I think I might try something with you. Uh, I've never done this on the podcast. I've done it with a bunch of friends. You know, arm wrestle. Yes. Right now. No, I'm just kidding. You, you, it's payback for making me throw out your bad shoulder. (laughs) (laughs) No, but, uh, have you heard of, I think Carl Jung, Jung, Carl Jung, Jung, uh, he put his seal of approval on this or helped develop it. 
but it's called animal psychology and it's this little quiz, but I've been taught how to do it. And I think Amy, could you pull up a little really? notes, notes app? Yeah. Would it be all right to do this with you? Sure. Let's do it. As long as it's legal. It's legal. Okay. It's legal. All right. It's interesting. It's okay. interesting. So there's a reason I'm doing it too. You, okay. you primed it by something you said earlier. Okay. So there's a reason for it. Well, now but, I'm pretty intrigued. Yeah. And there's, there's, I've done this with 30 or more people and almost all of them are like, whoa, or I can see that. And, okay. um, and someone that taught me to do it was a clinical psychologist, really good, renowned, and um, she was amazing. Uh, so we're going to take a couple of notes for you so you can remember them later. Uh, okay. And I'm thinking you might be able to do this with uh, your family. Okay. So, cause once you hear it once you can do it okay. with somebody else. Cool. Um, all right. So think of any animal, any animal in the world, land, sea, or air, any animal. Okay. And with that animal, you are going to, and, and think about things that you admire about it, appreciate about it, things that you can relate to things, the ways that it lives its life or is in community, however it is, but an animal and three things, at least three things you appreciate about it. You can tell us. I'm going to go for a wolf. A wolf. A gray wolf. A gray wolf. And the reason for that is because it's it's a very independent animal associated with operating as a as a lone survivor like a lone wolf and is very resilient on its own and able to function on its own and 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 stand up on its own two feet but yet it's also a pack animal it realizes its interdependence and the necessity for cooperation with its fellow wolves. So it's kind of like this unique mashup of lone wolf independence with pack interdependence. And so in addition to that, of course, there there's a great deal of, of, of bravery and courageousness and ferocity associated with the wolf. And then there's kind of like a little bit of like a noble beauty, especially if you look into the eyes, like this mm. noble savage beauty. <laughs> and so I would, I would say that it would be a wolf, like a, a great wolf. wolf. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You got resilient on there. Is that right, Amy? I got? I got the list. Got Independent the list? Okay. and the loan aspect, resilient, um, then a pack interdependency aspect and ferocity and a noble beauty. Mm. Okay. All right. Two. So, think of another animal, any animal in the world, land, sea, or air, three things you appreciate about it, um, or you can just list them out again, but things that you appreciate about it, that you relate to, something that you admire. So, my second one would be the dolphin because the dolphin, it's 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 highly intelligent. Like it's it's smart, but it's also fun loving. It's curious. It's kind of like relaxed and playful. Yet at the same time, it's not like it's stupid playful. Like it's actually a smart animal. The dolphin, or fish, or mammal, or whatever you'd want to categorize <laughs> it as. Uh, and and it, like like the wolf, there's a certain element of like beauty and grace to the dolphin. If you see that thing swimming and and. And it's it's sleek and shiny and fluid in the water and and just the way that it moves is is graceful. So it's intelligent, it's playful, it's 
it's graceful and it's also it's also an animal that you feel safe around and i i don't know if, if this is true or not but from what i understand is, is that if you're swimming with the dolphins and a shark comes by like the dolphin will actually help to protect a human being against the threat of a shark a sometimes even by attacking the shark which is really interesting and so it's 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 not only intelligent and playful and fun and graceful and beautiful but it's also like protective like you feel safe around it like you're taken care of so i'm gonna, I'm gonna say the dolphin is my second one okay like it that's awesome cool <laughs> that's awesome and then i'm going to tell you what these mean but before that one more animal okay any animal land sea or air and this time think about just three things you admire you appreciate things that you can relate to the way that it lives its life or lives a community any of that stuff Three things why any animal in the world, land, sea, or air. Well, I would say the first, last one that comes to mind is, of course, the lion. The lion. Might be because I'm wearing a hat right now on that <laughs> says lion. And one of my favorite songs right now is called Lion. Uh, but, but the reason, especially lion is the lion roar reminds me of my own love for singing and music and vocalization and, uh, kind of a theme in my life of late has been to roar like a lion. But then of course, you know, this comes as no surprise to people, the, the, the similar to the wolf, the, the bravery and the courageousness and the ferocity of the lion is another element. But I would say above all and related to, to what I alluded to earlier, the lion is the king of the prize. So it's the leader of the tribe. It, it's, it's again, similar to the dolphin, something that you feel safe and protected around something like the wolf, something that has like a little bit of savage beauty around it. And then of course, that component of just like roaring and having a voice unabashedly uh, expressing one's voice and one's character in a very brave and courageous manner. It would be the lion and of course i also uh like i mentioned growing up homeschooled and and doing a lot of reading one of my favorite books growing up my favorite book series growing up was the chronicles of narnia and i loved aslan aslan the lion the chronicle i just couldn't i, I couldn't read anything about aslan without just getting a warm fuzzy in my heart mm -hmm. so nice yeah. that's awesome were you ready to know what this means I suppose so. Yeah. <laughs> and people should pause it and do it themselves so they can know. Yeah. It's yeah. going to be yeah. one of those, like, what's a dolphin wolf lion look like? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. That's your new crest. Yeah. Uh -huh. That's your new crest. Dolphin, no. a wolf, and a lion walk into a bar. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, if, if people want to pause and do it themselves, ask yourself that question. Mm -hmm. um, and then write down three things if that's easier for you. Just three characteristics. <laughs> Why? Three characteristics, attributes, three things you love about it. You can go back and do this after the, after this, where that's how you can do it to your kiddos. I think I might've forgot to say list three attributes. Why. Okay. But that you did great. This was awesome. Yeah, we got three ish. So we got this up and the gray wolf, the dolphin, the lion. Look at that. The She's three, got it all written down. There. The three <laughs> things this means is the first one is how you want to be seen how you want the world to perceive you, how you want to show up in the world with mm -hmm. people is like the gray wolf okay. to be seen as 
independent, a lone wolf, that you're resilient, but also you're a pack animal, interdependency, for ferocity, noble beauty. Um, and so does that, does that relate at all that you want to be seen as that, that you want to, the world to perceive you as kind of the gray wolf that I can do it on my own, but I've got my pack. I got my family. I can't say I think a lot about what I would want the People world to think of me. Yeah. And the reason that I say that is because I'm very cautious about being who the world wants me to be mm. versus who I want to be at my true authentic self. But at the same time, I would say that if someone were to see me and they were to say like, oh, Ben's like a gray wolf, I would totally be okay with that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I Great. think it's very yeah. wolf-like to yeah. not care about what yeah. people think yeah, of you. Yeah, that's a good, <laughs> point. That's wolf, a good yeah. point. Yeah, kind of a paradox there. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So right. what, I think you're going to, this is going to be cool because I see some of these things. Maybe, maybe you want to show up as the gray wolf. Maybe not. Maybe because you don't really care that much. But two, the dolphin you want to be seen as the gray wolf, but the world really sees you as the dolphin. Mm. That you're highly intelligent, you're fun-loving, playful, beautiful in grace. I relate that to your movement today. I was like, damn, that guy can move, grace. <laughs> Fluid, protective though. I would see that you would be a great protector, even the mm. way that you're talking about your family mm. and that you're safe to be around. So although some tendencies, maybe when ego flares up, something like that, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't even think any of these are anything bad, but mm -hmm. you might want to be seen as the gray wolf, but really people see you as the dolphin. Mm -hmm. They see you as fun loving. Uh, your wife, maybe she thinks you like to have sex for fun, like a dolphin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Slippery. Yeah, <laughs> slippery when what? The, uh, but highly, highly intelligent, fun loving, playful, graceful, fluid, protective, and safe. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Did you relate to that at all? Yeah, yeah? absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So the first one is how you want to be perceived. Right. Second one is how you really, how really you are perceived. perceived. Yeah. But the third one is who you really are. The uh -huh. lion is your spirit animal. The lion is who you really are. I found this really interesting because it was roaring, singing. You like to sing, but unabashed <laughs> about your voice. I think it's interesting mm. too Brave, that courageous. like one that speaks so much to him, mm. he chose third, yeah. you know, and I, I, in mind did the same thing and that's weird how our yeah, brains do that. That's, that's the proven psychology part of this. Um, yeah, it is kind of interesting because I, I actually didn't know there were going to be three. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so brave and courageous, uh, bravery, the king, you were just talking about at mm -hmm. your house, you like to be a king, yeah, yeah, you know, have yeah. that on your, uh, your crest, protective, safe. Savage beauty and oh, oh Aslan. I, Aslan. Aslan. I, thought, I thought I said Asian. Aslan. <laughs> I was like Asian, but uh, Aslan. So, and that was one of your favorite books growing up mm -hmm. with Chronicles right. of Narnia. Yeah. So, wow. Basically, first one, Gray Wolf. That's how you want to be seen. Dolphin is how people do see you, but really, you're the you're the lion, my man. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. You're a lion. Is that a uh, is that is that like a like a thing? This animal psychology. If someone were to were to look that up, you know, Google it or, or I'm gonna check it out right or, now. Or, or, I'm, or duck, I'm, duck go it. You, do, you, do you find I'm animal pretty psychology sure. resources? Because <laughs> um, I've never heard of this before. Yeah. So yeah. Well, you want to know how I I did this and found it? Uh, I was at treatment for uh, rehab um, for substance use disorder, and there was a a speaker there um, and a therapist that was. I guess everyone else kind of claimed her as like one of the top 10 um, substance abuse like therapists or doctors in, in the country. And so she came in one day with 30 clients and she just gave us a piece of paper, had us write these down 
and 32 of us were just like jaw dropped. And because we all knew each other really well, we had been there for 90 days, stuff like that. We could see everybody's, oh yeah, he, he, he wants to be seen as this, but he, he, I see him as that. Oh, but this is who he really is. So then afterward we were able to have these breakout sessions and talk about it and say, okay, if this is kind of a little bit of the shadow, well, what could be part of the shadow of this? Yeah. Um, well, this is how people are seeing us. Is there any good, bad, you know, pros, cons, but this is who I really am. How can I move more towards this? Because this is who I want to be yeah. on the inside. And this is how, who I really am. So how can I match that up with how I show up yeah. and how people see me? And it's, I mean, it's, it's great that people see you as playful, safe, protector, all that other stuff. Yeah. But like I, now hearing the King and just spending the day with you, I'm like, the way that dude was working yeah. out was like a king. It's not super a interesting. It's super mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, it, it, like part of me, like like the the skeptic part of me wants to say, well, gosh, like, what if I'd named three of the ran- like, what if I'd named a spider <laughs> and a dragon and 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 and, and a, a hippo. Right. Would we be able to to take those same three and be like, oh, yeah, Ben, that's definitely it. <laughs> but, Maybe. But then at the same time, it's like, yeah, like it really resonates, yeah. right? What what comes up there. So, yeah, it's, it's just, it's interesting. I guess it doesn't matter if it's, if it's accurate, it's accurate. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think it's the way that they prep them. And I, I might have forgot the part, the three attributes, but you did great because you gave even more than that. And I think what was really cool about this, one thing that really helped me um, was that I. Uh, was able to take that into meditation mm. and basically pray and, and and basically ask God and source creator, like, hey, what do, what do these three things mean? And how can I become more like who I really am? And so my three animals, just real quick, were um, first one I picked was an okapi. An okapi, can you pull that up? Sure. Um, an mm-hmm. okapi lives Why she in the- Everybody knows what an okapi is. Do you know what it is? I have no clue. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's like three no animals. Clue. It's like three animals in one. Oh, like a liger. It's it, it, kind sort of. of yeah. It's it's got there the right. head of a giraffe, the butt of a zebra, <laughs> and the body of like an antelope or deer. And they're really rare. They're in endangered species. My, there it is. You kind of cheated choosing three animals. For yeah. Well, no, yeah, well, yeah, he did. Oh, no, it is an actual, animal. This isn't a mythical. <laughs> it is. No, it's it's, it's a real animal. Can you pull up one more time, Mike, so you can see it? one more time. It kind of so it's the only animal in a giraffe a day family that isn't extinct with the giraffes. And there's only a hundred or 200 of them left in the world. And I got to see them in the Congo. They live right so there. Weird. Well, a, and, no, I've never seen or heard of that animal before. And that's absolutely intriguing. And B, when I see an animal like that, kind of like a platypus, I think God has a sense of humor. Yeah, yeah right. right. Like God, is a, yeah. God is a creative yeah. guy with a sense of humor. Uh-huh. Holy cow. What do I do with wow. these three parts? Let's just put <laughs> them all together. So we got agape. Okapi. Okapi. O-K-A-P-I. Others call them okay. Okapi, depending okay. on where you are. And uh, the reason I picked that was I said they're like three things in one. And I said like they're a majestic creature. And the third one was that the pygmy people love them. That's mm-hmm. an animal they revere. And I thought that's weird. That's maybe how I want to be seen or something. Right. But then uh, the second one, and I just love that animal. And second was uh, a Cani Corso, an Italian Mastiff, a, a big gentle giant um, that – has unconditional love 
and that's a protector. The that's, Italian Mastiff dog. Yeah. I mean, yeah, okay. Yeah. I know Tony what Corsi that is. Italian Mastiff yeah. dog. They're yeah. big. They yeah, look like cool pit bulls on steroids. Yeah. Yeah. They used to be the Roman war dogs that they were right. taking to the Coliseum right. and they would like show their prowess. With the, with the Milestead knockout gene, like the ultra muscular big yeah. dogs. Yeah. Yeah. And they would take them in there with a yeah. gladiator and a, a lion and the dog and, and a soldier would show their like military prowess at the Coliseum. Wow. Uh, with the Connie Corso. And so I picked that gentle giant and conditional love and protector. And then third was a bison. And I picked a, a bison because, um, what were the three reasons? But the first one was that they run through the storm. Have you heard that? The buffalo and the be a buffalo, not a bull, be uh, a buffalo, not a bull. So a bull run away from a storm yeah. when a big dark storm cloud comes in thunder clouds they run away and they get caught. This is real. They get caught in it longer and they get beaten down in it and they're in the storm longer. But a bison and a herd of bison will turn towards a storm and they'll walk towards it slowly, confidently waiting for the rain to mm. come. And then when it comes, they barrel through the darkness. Like and so they get through the storm quicker. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I, like I can. Facing their fears. Yeah. Yeah. So I can relate to that almost like this podcast, overcome, uh -huh. like head towards it, move through it. Right. Like you'll, you'll get through it faster and right. you'll be able to help others through right. it. So the bison at the front. Swallow the sausage chunks a, and just keep Yeah, just through, keep maybe. going. Yeah. 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 But they'll, they'll provide a wake for the, um, the smaller or the calves of the bison and stuff. Yeah. To, to, so they provide a path. And wow. then I said their hide provides shelter. Yeah. And so their skin, even after they're gone, yeah. they, they provide a home or shelter. I was thinking like Native Americans. I was like, I hope that my life can, can provide a shelter or, or yeah. you know, can go beyond my lifetime, can still help people. Yeah. And so, yeah. So I was just like, whoa. And everybody else, like it was, it was, it was mind blowing. So anyways, you can do this Gosh. with your kids. With your Dang wife. it. I got animal envy now. Your animals are cool. <laughs> no, you got a lion. <laughs> You got a lion. Yeah. They're more a fringe wolf, than mine. They're more fringe than mine. Oh, yeah. I got well. to step up my zoology game. <laughs> I don't know. I just looked mine yeah, up too, and I'm animals. like, I don't. I think mine need to be better. Uh, what are yours? <laughs> well, I had a phoenix first, which I kind of like. Oh, geez, oh yeah. yeah, that's pretty, pretty cool. cool. And then I had a leopard. Yeah. And then I had a butterfly, which is actually accurate for me. So. Yeah, because yeah, her podcast mm -hmm. is all about personal transformation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Butterfly. It's kind of and funny phoenix too, because like the phoenix. Is it like you and you and me, Justin, we had like kind of a blend of yin and yang animals, like the dolphin, the lion, and the wolf, and the the first thing the uh, uh, that you said the, the okapi, the the, 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 the okapi seems like it's like a little bit more like possibly of a of a yin ish yeah. animal compared to the bison and the mastiff, and then the the phoenix and the butterfly and the leopard, those seem like very. And, and I might be stereotyping, but it seems like very kind of like a feminine, beautiful yeah, they have a type of yeah, female. Quality. Yeah, yeah, they do Ooh. definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so <laughs> yeah. interesting. All right, I'm gonna have to do this with my wife and my kids. Yeah, get home. do it. This, this will be our dinner time yeah. game. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Ben, you saved so me 25 bucks at Barnes and Noble. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm so grateful uh, you were here and on the show, and, oh, and thank thanks, you for man. sharing this with your audience. Well, too. well, thank you too. It was it was awesome to to meet you to work out with you. To ride in your tiny red car over yeah, the studio. The red sled. So you dressed up as Santa Claus. And uh, I'm I'm just super stoked for my audience to be able to get introduced to you too. So uh, well, thank you. If they want to, if they brother. happen to want to support, it's at fightfortheforgotten.org. Cool. You can join the fight club. And then how can people find you? Well, I'll link to that in the show notes, the fightfortheforgotten.org on my thank end. You. And then uh, people can just find me at, at uh, bangrefieldlife.com. Okay. Yep. That's awesome. Yep. I'm really grateful for you, brother. Thank you for being here with us. Likewise, man. Yeah. Thanks, you guys. Thank awesome. you. Hey, don't forget to send your overcome stories to overcomepodcast at gmail.com. 
And also, rate, review, subscribe, and follow Overcome with Justin Wren.